0: Of the cool things is i'm running special every day so i still get that creativity and then uh we're doing like dessert of the day we want to get back to doing amuse bouche's, which is like you know something right you give to the guest when they sit down it could be anything so that'll give me a little bit of creativity too so i, I don't feel like i'm Going to the corporate route took took away my culinary freedom, you know. Like yeah. I've got a couple of buddies of mine who bust my balls, you know. Like, what? You used <laughs> you own your own place. Now you're working for the man, you know. I'm like, ah, come on now. Uh, you're not paying me. You're not writing my checks. So leave me alone.
1: Aren't we all working for the man if we're taking money? Yeah, <sighs> I tend to agree.
2: <laughs> what is it called when you bring something to the guests when they sit down? What
1: amuse
0: it, uh, it means a, a a gift from the shopkeeper. So back in the day when you bought, uh, shoes,
2: yeah.
0: uh, the cobbler shoesmith would give you like a, a horn, you know, to kind of push your, oh, your foot man. down. And so they would give you a gift or they would get an extra pair of, uh, you know, shoelaces. So in the culinary world, uh, it's just a small, maybe, maybe you cut too much salmon the night before and you didn't sell it. So you cook it up and you make some kind of little salad with it. And basically it's just a, a bite kind of like, Appreciate you coming in tonight. Thank you. You know, here's a gift from the chef. So uh, that's something they used to do there pre COVID. So they're trying to bring back a couple things that was going on there. Pre COVID kind of, you know, we're kind of shaking those cobwebs off. So I'm, I'm happy to be a part of that. You know, kind of, I was looking, I was like, Oh man, they've got this place called the tower on the top of the, the parking garage next door. And it's a storage room, but it was like 120 degrees in there. But I was looking for these like little <laughs> offset spoons that they have uh, yesterday and sweating my ass off. So I think it's something we'll get into in the next week for sure and going back to that route. So that, that gives you a creativity. You can look around what you have the most of. Oh, man, I got two extra bags of radishes. Okay, I'll make a little radish slaw. You know, I've got these shrimp. Uh, we'll let's just uh, wrap them in some prosciutto and just do a small bite like that, big on a spoon. You know, and I just think it heightens a dying experience. You know, people like free; they sure do. <laughs> so, you know,
1: oh, okay, thank you. You know, well, I think it makes people feel special. That's what I
0: like to think. You know,
1: yeah. um, kind of like when I go out and
0: talk to guests, you know, I think it, it heightens the dining experience. You get to meet the chef, you know?
1: So how did you become a chef? Were you always passionate about cooking or how did that uh, begin? Out of necessity? No, <laughs> I don't know. You
0: know, so I had a paper route when I was nine. Um, There was a couple of restaurants on my paper route and uh, I knew my parents could never afford to take me there, you know? So um, when I got really good at delivering papers, which means, you know, I went from having like 19 customers to about 50. Uh, the first time I was able to have 30 or $40, I went into this Italian restaurant, um, uh, called Mancuso's and I ate lasagna for the first time that wasn't like a Stopher's box lasagna. And, um, I would go to this other little like meet in three places. So, um, my sisters, when I would get home from the paper, I would ask me, like, "Where'd you eat at?" You know, because uh, I definitely wasn't eating with the Swansons that night, like my my siblings were. So, um, I realized that I I liked finer quality food or or home cooked meals. I mean, and it's no you know diss on my mother. Um, my father got MS when I was five, with and my sisters were four and three. So. Um, my mother kinda took on two jobs to support four kids and my dad. My dad kinda took over the cooking. Well, he was a military guy, so it was like nine ingredients in one pot and like here you go, <laughs> you know, and uh you know, we had like pinto bean Monday where we knew I could smell pinto beans like two blocks away from the house, you know. So there was just certain foods that were common in our house. I was not I did not like them, you know. Mm. So um when I was fourteen 15, uh, my cousin Dean started working at a restaurant. Uh, occasionally they'd call me up and I would go in and wash dishes, you know, for like 50, 60 bucks cash. And when you're 14, that's pretty cool. Yeah. When I got old enough to work in the restaurant, um, I took a dishwashing job and then, um, watching them do things, uh, seeing how the restaurant worked, seeing, the that high point about 8 o'clock when we were feeding 300, 400 people, I was, you, know, you could see that there was an energy in it. Um, so I, I tried to work my way up there. You know, so I did dishes there for maybe a wash dishes for a year, year and a half, and they put me in prep and dishes. But I was in high school at this point in time, and I got into some trouble, and I got expelled uh, from high school. And they weren't going to let me come back to that high school. I wasn't going to go to the rival high school because I had cut some shit shenanigans over there <laughs> and uh decided that the only other real option was to go to this Votech culinary program. Well, it was a Votech school, so they had wood shop, metal shop. They had just started a computer class. You know, I kind of kicked myself in the ass for not taking that because, Man. you know, I was like this close to it. But I thought nerds and um they had a culinary program. And uh, the teacher teaching it was pretty hot, and I was like sixteen at that point in time. So I was like, I- "I'll do this," because I'm already working in my real life as a uh, in a restaurant. So we thought it would be a good fit, and um, right away, they're kind of you get. There was 10, 10 kids in this culinary program. The the idea was we go in and we prep and we cook, and then we open a restaurant for lunch. So we were kind of the the rival to the lunch ladies. Um, and we got really good at it. And I, Mrs. Dodge was her name. She kind of took me and Dave Marcelli, who was another kid aside and said, you guys definitely um, get what's going on. So we started doing these uh American Culinary Federation accredited competitions. And I just realized I was really good at this, you know,
1: that was your calling, huh? I believe so. Yes. So did you ever travel like across the, the sea to see, like overseas to see how like they do stuff there, or are you predominantly only cooked here in America?
0: It's yeah, only here in America. I had kind of hopes and visions of crossing the Big Creek, you know, but um, both my parents were pretty sick when I was in my 20s. And I always thought, you know, if I go over there and I miss their deaths, you know, I would kind of eat my lunch over that, you know, and so I never did, but I always had thought, like, man, if I just go to England, get on a ferry, go over to. Germany, whatever, hop on a Euro rail pass. I could cook my way from England to China because it's, you know, big giant super continent. But yeah, that never happens. You know.
1: So how did you get started? Like, did you just do job, 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 and then you start your own place or how did that transition?
0: Well, so while I was in this, uh, culinary arts program, um, I was working still at at the restaurant. It was called Brennan's fish house. I was there for like, five years. So I graduated high school and the culinary arts program placed you in some of the finer restaurants in the city of Painesville, which is right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. We had a couple of nice places, but it was still a lot of mom and pop. There was a lot of independently owned places, but um, they got me going there, went to culinary school and culinary school was kind of the big game changer. So um, it got me going in there. What I was, I think what I've always been about or liked about myself was kind of loyalty. You know, if you're going to treat me right, I'll treat you right. So, you know, I've only had maybe nine jobs my whole life, you know. Mm. Um, And out of culinary school, I went to work for a company called Mountain Jack's Prime Rib Steakhouse. They were owned by a Japanese company called Paragon Foods who bought beef product from the United States with the world economy at a very lower price between November November and February. They bought it for like dollars on the pound. And they're smart. They turned around and opened up companies in the United States, sold the beef back to the consumer of the United States at a higher price. Um, I was with them for a few years and then they moved me around. I started opening restaurants in Chicago, uh, Champaign, Illinois, Cincinnati. So I opened three restaurants for this company in two years. Um, I really felt like I was on the fast track. Um, and then we got time to like. <laughs> There's a chef there. His name was Dave. He told me, "I'm not letting you move on. I'm keeping you here." You know, because um, I made his job and life easier. So I talked to them about what can I do to make more money. You know, um, both my parents were sick, and I thought if I could send a little money home to them and. Uh, they were like, well, you know, you're 25, you're not married, you don't own a house. I, heck, I didn't even have a car then because I had a suspended driver's license. <laughs> so, um, I got the picture, you know, that they wanted a company man. And if you're married and you have kids, you're more likely to be l- more loyal to them. If you have a house payment, you're more likely to be loyal to them. You're not going to run off yeah. the first time someone throws some more dollars your way. So, Um, I immediately kind of started looking for something. Um, I'd been to Memphis in 1990 to visit my cousin Dean. He was over in Millington at the, uh military base. We were here in January and it was like, you know, 58 degrees and where I grew up and where I was living at the time, it was like, you know, 30 inches of snow and negative 12. So the opportunity came to, to get to Memphis. So I I got here as quick as I could for a little bit extra money. And, uh, here I just worked a few jobs. I worked at uh I opened up uh Elvis Presley's on Beale, where the hard oh, rock nice. is now. That's what brought me to Memphis originally. And then I was at Chow Baby Cucina for a couple years, downtown on the mall right next to Majestic Grill, kinda of where that uh bluefin was at for a lot of years. When I got <clears throat> it was Chow Baby, then it was like Battier's All Stars and then it was like some kind of a but it's been a lot of things over the years, that space next to Majestic Grill. And then I worked for Erland Jensen for like three years and then McEwen's on Monroe for seven. And then I kind of left McEwan's to, and we, at that point in time, they, the market had crashed in '08, I think it was. So there was a restaurant group out there uh, owned by Preston Lamb. He owns a lot of the businesses on Beale Street, but he was branching out with Mesquite Chop House they were trying to do a higher end steakhouse. That the two and a half years I spent with uh, Mountain Jack's Prime Rib Steakhouse, I had some experience in, in fine dining steakhouse. So we did this hybrid GM chef thing, which started my wheels turning about maybe ownership, you know. But I worked, I did that for two years, and then uh, I went to Itabina above Beals, above BB uh, King's. It's the first job i ever been fired from, but it also was the catalyst to me, like opening my own place. So if Tommy hadn't fired me, I don't know if I would have opened my own
1: place. So basically they pushed you in the direction you wanted to be going anyways.
0: Sure. You know, like there was been a lot of whispers in my ears since the McEwen's days. Um, you know, a lot of, I tell a lot of people, I cut my teeth at McEwen's on Monroe. You know, I kind of figured out what my style of cooking was. Um, Mac Edwards. Uh, I was kind of like a mad scientist, you know, and he'd he'd come at me with like ten twelve recipes that he would see in other magazines, and then I would come at it with two or three of my own ideas and we kind of mash them up and we'd make a menu every three or four months so it was it allowed me that creative outlet and uh yeah, you know that's uh that that's kinda how it all happened, you know, so what would you consider your style i- I called it uh <laughs> i used to tell people it's it's southern inspired cuisine um you know you get a lot of people that you know you low delta or you got people that talk about like uh you know cajun cuisine as southern you know it, to me innately what what southern cooking is is really grandma's cooking you know and to do that as a chef and to have that you know that creative side you want to kind of elevate that food because you're you're talking almost about like it sounds weird to say but like poor food on a certain level um but really good wholesome food like so when my wife will cook for me she'll cook me like lima beans black-eyed peas cornbread corn casserole some kind of pork with some chow chow and uh that's the kind of food you want to eat right before you go out and work your ass off and out you know on the When you want to save farming, so when you're out there working on the acres, you know, it's the kind of food that'll stick to you, you know? So I always wanted to try to lighten it up a little bit, you know, where maybe, like for the meatloaf that I had on Rizzo's menu, it had a green tomato gravy. All right, well, that green tomato gravy was, it was essentially a green tomato, like white wine cream sauce, you know? Like we didn't do the roux with the butter and the flour and then Mm -hmm. add the cream. We... We took white wine, shallots, rosemary, reduced it down with a green tomato, so they would soften, and then we blend the hell out of it and we well, we did throw a pound of butter into it eventually. <laughs> but uh, we we got to the same place just with a different method and so the the food's always been southern inspired to me like you know, I really like Cajun cooking. I really kind of fell in love with the food of New Orleans, uh started going down there and 2002 when they were stimulating the economy after 9-11 so a round-trip ticket to new orleans was like 101 <laughs> uh, why not do that you know yeah. um so i kind of fell in love with that style of cuisine which you know when you really do look at like demographically cooking when you only say there's southern food and there's west coast tex-mex and there's northern food well you know um when you get into cajun or creole cooking i mean it's you got, you got German immigrants. You've got uh, the Acadians who came down from like Denmark, Sweden. You've got Native Americans. You got Haitian. You got South African. So it's a melting pot of food. And you know, if you really want to break down what America is, it's a melting pot. So to me, you know, a lot of this like Cajun Creole cooking is almost more American than. Chef Boyardee, which you know innately is is American food, you know. So, um, I really kind of fell in love with that. I I bought a bunch of history books on Cajun cooking, Creole cooking. Um, it's really weird when you when you do this for so long that it kind of becomes like the makeup of who you are, you know. Um, a lot of chefs are defined by the kind of cooking they do.
2: Were were you when you were growing up? Um, well, that you said there was a lot of Meat and
0: threes,
2: mm-hmm. the way they are down here, or
0: not as money, not as much, yeah, like it okay. was more like a open face roast beef sandwich, okay. with some corn that came out of a can yeah. and <laughs> and some lima beans that might have came out of a can
2: because you know we we are really spoiled here in Memphis when it comes to oh, food because our you know like you'll go. Uh, you have Taminos that used to be like a gas station and inside you had uh, a deli and they did a steam table and all that stuff, you know, gas station food in Memphis is on another level. No doubt about that. Um, Because like, and then when you go to other cities, they don't have that. And you go to like their show food restaurant or whatever. It's like not that good. Like yeah. our eating year is, I think the best. It's not, now it's also probably the most unhealthiest because, <laughs> you know, when we used to make the macaroni at my store, I, mean, I swear to God, I don't even know how many sticks of butter were in that thing, but right. like, it was just like, <laughs> like three pounds of butter. You know, that's like the first ingredient, you know, butter or sugar is always butter the first good. ingredient. And the yams had like four cu- uh, big cups of sugar, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just insane. Like, but th-
0: maybe that's why we're so unhealthy. It's got a little bit to do with it, you know? Um I remember when I made sweet potatoes for the first time here, you know, I'm, I'm all like, um, honey, coconut milk, cayenne pepper, you know, a little bit of cinnamon. And, uh, people really like it, but people are like, this, this is really isn't sweet potatoes though. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, because it doesn't have two cups of sugar in it. You know, I'm using honey, but you know, that, that was always kind of the key for me was just to kind of elevate the southern cuisine that's here and kind of give it that chef's interpretation. But uh, when it comes to gas station food, I, I tell people that. Memphis, Mississippi, kind of the Mm -hmm. the area has the best, some of the best food in the world are at gas stations. You know, if you're looking for that, you know, stick to your stomach, really good down home. Because there's a little black lady back there named Effie who's been working the gas station for nine years making wonderful food. You know, Um, I'm not a big fan of, you know, the. The hotel pan full of fried okra, you know, because I know that it came out of a bag from Cisco. But yeah, when, when you're looking at those pork chops that are smothered in gravy, I mean, those things slow cooked for two or three hours back there in the oven, they're falling off the bone, you know. Um, you need an extra 10
1: napkins if you're eating it in the car, you know.
0: Yeah,
2: because that oil is going to go right <laughs> through the first seven.
1: <laughs> what do you think about everybody that's doing this stuff now that's kind of like scientific looking? I don't know. I mean, I'm not really a big fan of it, but at the end of the
0: day, it's the evolution of, of cuisine. I mean, you, everything that you look at, you know, for when we were kids, we had Atari, you know, now we got gaming systems you can live stream, you know, so I just think it's a, it's a culinary evolution. You gotta, you know, ain't nothing been new since the last supper, you Mm -hmm. know, like, um, you can only reinvent the wheel so many times before you just back to looking at the wheel again, but I, I get molecular cu- cuisine. I, I understand why some of these, things. I mean, you know, if you get a chocolate orb that's got a layer of passion fruit and a layer of raspberry and it looks like those bottles you buy on the beach in Florida, they have layers of sand. Oh in it, yeah. You, you pour some, uh, you know, steaming hot cocoa over it that also has a cube of, uh, you know, that, that ice that smokes, um, So you get this whole effect, you know, eating is a lot to do with your eyes, too. And a lot of the molecular cuisine and cooking is eye appealing, you know, like in sensory overload. You know, when you put a dome that's got smoked rosemary in it over your chicken breast, and they lift that dome off and you smell the smoke in the rosemary. and You you know, almost like could be transported somewhere for a brief second in your brain. I get it, but I'm not I'm not down with it, you know.
1: Yeah, I went to a, uh, like it was a Michelin place when we were in Barcelona, and it was like a, it was a lunch, and I think it was like a 30 course lunch or something. Holy moly, that's not a lunch. And it was, (laughs) it was way too long for one thing, but it was just like, you know, I get it, it's cool to look at, but Mm -hmm. I would just rather just have, you know, like what you mentioned earlier that you had at your place, or like with the gas station type food, Mm -hmm. you know, just something simple. But I mean, like, there's a place for everything. There's, like I so said, there's an ass for every seat, so that appeals to some people, other than others, or over than others. So no doubt. I'm- do you do you think that when they lift in that little
2: thing up over the chicken, yeah, like you already are experiencing that chicken's gonna be really good, even if it's not. Do you think you very tricks your mind to thinking it's like fireless oh, yeah, chicken? I do. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying, like. You see that what you talk mm-hmm. about your eyes, and then mm-hmm. when you taste it, all you thinking of is what you saw. See, so like, oh man, this is so
0: good. And maybe four bites in, and someone else saying, oh, <laughs> "Dude, you know," then you might you know have your opinion changed. You yeah, know, like, oh yeah, you're right. It is a little tough, but no, I think right away you're they're overwhelming your sensors, You know, your brain, your eyes, your nose, your, everything's like, holy crap, look at that man. So yeah, yeah, I do. It's
2: kind of like that. Those drinks they make at um, a lot of places do it, but. It's where the drink comes like a little box, and they open the box and then they hand you the drink. You know, like that dry ice oh, goes yeah, everywhere. Yeah, you know, yeah. like they, it looks really cool. It does. Yeah. Like, the presentation is awesome, but is the drink really good?
1: Right. Like, I don't and know. Is it really
2: worth $14? I know. <laughs> or, yeah. It's like insanely priced, too.
1: Well, that's the thing. You're going to piss and shit it out eventually, anyway. Yeah. So why are you going through all this rigmarole just? You know, but like I said, some people want an experience. Some people don't. Sure. So don't go to those places if you don't want an experience. I guess yeah, I've always felt like most people
0: gravitate towards a, a you know meals that their grandparents prepared, or you know they get a steak the way their dad cooked it on a grill. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think the the average Joe just walking the street doesn't explore much when it comes to culinary you know cuisine. I mean, you know, like you take a place. Where I'm at now, like the Capitol Grill, there may be something we only eat there once a year. you know it's more of, it's a price point. and it's you know, you're sitting in leather booths and you got you know plush walls and the lighting's just dim enough. and you know when we had rizzos, I always felt like I wanted a place that I could afford to eat at. Mm. I wanted a place that was comfortable for me to sit in at the end of the day when no one's there and I'm looking around. So, I always, uh, you know, we always tried to uh, just make it comfortable for everyone. I think some places uh, are stuffy, too stuffy for people, you know. So, and, you know, they'd never ate a steak in a, you know, a leather booth with a, a waiter wearing a tuxedo. You know, they'd rather eat the steak in the backyard and have a beer in, in their shorts and chilling out, you know.
2: Well, it's like you said, some places. You go once a year, right? So somebody sure. might go to Capital, Capital Girl one, one time for, like, you know, an anniversary yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. But somebody might have gone to your restaurant once a week or a couple of times a month. For sure. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I could, I would probably do what you just said but by going to the other restaurant more frequently. Mm-hmm.
0: I I do myself, you know. I mean, like, I love Erland Jensen. I love Dave Krog over at Dory, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. I've been to Erland's once in eight years, and I haven't even been to Dory yet, you know. And Part of that's because I hadn't had time, but part of it also is, is I don't want to drop off 300 bucks for a, a dinner for two that I know I could cook at home also for 80 or $90, you know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> that's just how, you know. So I, I love that Erland's is there, and I love that Dory is there. I love that Kelly English has his place over there at Iris. Iris was a place for me to go for my birthday for three or four years. But I didn't go there any other day but my birthday, you know. So that's yeah, kind of. When you go, when you, when you, when you
2: vacationing somewhere and you go to like a restaurant that someone recommended, like the concierge would recommend a restaurant to you. Sure. And you see the menu and you see the pricing. Are you like, what the fuck? Like that's sometimes you're like, damn, that's the only cost. I know the cost on this because I yeah. buy it here or I buy it yeah. Rizzo's. Like
0: when I was training for the Capital grill, they sent me up to Boston and uh, Gordon Ramsay had opened a restaurant, which was three blocks from the hotel. I walked by it every day, but to see a grilled cheese sandwich on there for $18 need get an order of fries for 12 so now you're 30 dollars for a grilled cheese just because gordon Ramsay's name is on yeah um you know i, I just, it's a throat punch you know like i just I, I, so i didn't eat there the whole time i was there i could have eaten there once or twice it looked like it was packed most days but i'm yeah i mean when i know what the price point is you know i i'm kind of less inclined to to go eat there like i get what food profit is, and if so, if that costs you seven dollars, you're three times around twenty-one dollars. But if if I knew it cost twenty-one for them to sell it to the public, but I see a price tag like thirty-eight, you know, I'm like, man, they're price
1: gouging. You know, what do you think about the whole Gordon Ramsay way of treating people? Well, I mean, so <laughs> I come from a different background.
0: Like, I was okay with. Chefs treating me that way Mm -hmm. coming up, um, you know, or I tell people over the years, you know, Erlen Jensen whacked me in an ear with with a pair of tongs, you know, but it was because I made the mashed potatoes wrong. I I can promise you I didn't make the mashed potatoes wrong again. Mm -hmm. So there is a, you know, a tried and true approach sometimes. And and it's, you know, I don't want to say it's a shame that violence has to be used to get there. But, I mean, through history, you know, tried and true, violence does work on a certain level to get an end accomplishment. Um, most of what Gordon Ramsay doing on TV is is for show. I mean, I i I've, I'm, have seen personal home videos of him. I've read books. He's passionate about what he does. He did grow up in the same time as that. He's just a few years older than me. But, you know, we your chefs were... They were hard on you because they wanted you to do the job right. And if they weren't hard on you, you know, like I learned when I was 19, give them nothing to bitch about. Like, if they're not bitching at me, I'm doing my job right. So you either catch on real quick or you don't. And then, yes, there's a level of hazing that does go on. But um, to me, that was like, you get it or you don't get it. I've always used to say sink or swim, do or die. Like, you know. There's some people who aren't cut out for our business who want to be in our business. And those you you figure out relatively quick who those people are. You also you come across certain chefs or cooks that have had nine jobs in seven years and you realize that you know they're they're faking their way through you know that saying fake it to till, till you make it. Yeah. They mean that they never made it, you know. Mm. Um so I I see a place for it. Um, some people might say that the way we do things now, or at least like the receiving end of this culture is like, this is wrong and you don't treat people this way. And, but I mean, if you're trying to get an end effect, I I think sometimes you have to be a little hard on people to bend them, mold them, shape them, because if you're not that way with them, you're not, sometimes you don't get that end result. You know, like I was pushed pretty hard, you know, um, but I mean, we also, you know, I, there's a lot of horror stories, but there's a, the, the best stories so much outweigh those horror stories. You know, like I had a chef who would go smoke crack right before we got busy and he would come back in the kitchen and he'd be like, "Woo!" and he'd like, get in the middle of us. Well, you know, we would hot tong him, which means you take the tongs, you throw them in the oven on a sheet pan for about 10 minutes, you pull them out. You take your tongs, you set those tongs down next to him and you say, Hey, hand me those tongs, Chef. And he grabs him, he grabs four hundred and fifty degree pair of tongs. Jesus. Whoa, flings them, and then runs to the back to put some burn cream on. Well that way we box him out and he doesn't get back on the line because he's freaking high, man. Yeah. You know. Um you know, there's a guy, Ned Claybush, who would drink about an eight pack of of beer during a shift, you know. <laughs> um so by beer six, you know, he's sloppy, you know. Well, you gotta move him on. So you know, you, you take a sheet pan out of the oven, you bump his arm just lightly enough to give him a blister, burn him. Um And they know who they are. They know what they are. And, and they eventually do get out of your way or um, they go sit in the office, you know, and, and you, you
1: and the three or four guys online with you just knock it out, you know? Now, do you think that people that see Gordon Ramsay on TV don't realize that it's for show and then they're get into the, Field and then they start doing it to people, possibly, and take it too far.
0: Sure, I agree with that. I mean, if, if you watch something long enough or enough times, you hear something long enough or enough times, you you can, you know, kind of emulate that. Um, I do think that there are a lot of blowhards and and, and loudmouths that fit into a kitchen well. Like sometimes the loudest guy in the room isn't the smartest guy in the room, you know. And, I don't think it ever is. I'm usually the
2: loudest. That's right. I'm saying
0: like, well, you know, when you're when you're expediting or, or in a role that I am you you kind of have to be the loudest voice in the room. But yeah, I mean, I do believe that there are some deviant people who do get in the restaurant business because they think they can yell at some people and scream at them and make them feel, you know, beneath themselves. But I'm I'm telling you, from my experience. If your chef's on your ass, nine times out of ten, it's because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But you also get to a point where he's not on your ass because you've stepped up. You've you've you know shook off the, the bullshit and, and you've moved past it, you know. So then that chef is usually on to the next person, you know, yeah. that, that isn't doing their job right. But yeah, there's definitely a I'd say a, a group of people who do get into this business
1: because they believe they can bully and belittle people around yeah yeah i would say that you can give constructive criticism Mm -hmm. but to just be an asshole to be an asshole is not appropriate yeah
0: i've learned more what not to do in my life working in kitchens than i have what to do yeah and that was from watching other chefs be dickheads to people you know breaking down a server when she's or he has messed up a table. Well, all you're doing is escalating that situation worse. I'm, I'm more of a de-escalator. I kind of, I, I like to tell people I like to coach up versus like step down on people, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that's why I've, you know, kind of created a good reputation for myself. People kind of gravitate towards me yeah. because they know they're going to get a fair handshake in this. Um, you know, there's been a few times where I've, I have blown my top, you know, but I mean, there were certain things that got me to that point. It wasn't like I just, Came in that day and said, I'm going to fuck Jerry's world up today. He messes up one time. I'm going to just blow him up. No, it was a, you know, a, a catalyst, a series of events throughout the course of a day that got us to this point. And now I'm yelling at you, you know, and I, I'm not a yeller. I don't want to yell at people. I want people to do well, you know,
1: no, I definitely understand that. Cause there's sometimes like, if you're somebody's like a habitual line stepper or just always not following direction. And it's like at a certain point, it's like, either get in line or get left behind
0: right yeah those folks tend to get phased out now those are the guys that you meet that have you know six jobs in eight years mm-hmm. you know uh, and i think that's probably a, a crosses over into other industries and fields you know there's always that you know six or seven guys you come across that are just well, how in the fuck is he working here how, how does that happen you know yeah.
1: and you just kind of sift through and, and move on now, who were some of your, like, idols growing up as far as chefs, or did you have any at all?
0: Uh, growing up, I really didn't. I mean, it's weird. Like, so I spent a lot of time on suspensions at home. So the and Gourmet, you know, like when I was growing up, there wasn't cool chefs. I mean, it was, you know, um, <laughs> it, it was just people on, on TV that were, had an hour long show. I, I, when I was growing up in the eighties, you know, even television itself was just, you know, there was no reality TV. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, the closest thing you probably got to reality TV was a cooking show because they're kind of winging it, you know, like they had a recipe. They knew what they was going to do, but, uh, you know, so it's just so not until probably the early 2000s when Anthony Bourdain started writing his books, um, you know, You started seeing, I think, the birth of Food Network. Like, for me, like Food Network kind of changed the culinary game um, where you got an opportunity to kind of not just be in Martha Stewart's kitchen. You know, they they started having culinary competition programs or um, you got to a point where there was three chefs competing, you know, for a – a large amount of money whether you know $10,000 seems to be the average norm. Yeah. But so yeah growing growing up I really didn't have anybody that I would like say, oh, I want to be like that chef." But once I got into my, you know, late 20s early 30s, I was like, "I I could relate very well to what Anthony Bourdain was writing and speaking about because I had experienced it, you know. I could relate to where Gordon Ramsay was or where um you know, uh, was Mario Batali, you know, those, those kind of guys, they were kind of like, they were all maybe <clears throat> five to 10 years older than me, but we grew up kind of in the same scenarios. So I could, it was more about who I could relate to and respect versus having like a culinary idol, you know, or someone I looked up to.
2: Yeah. I think um, the um like the food channels, like food, uh, there's one called cooking channel. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the food network, obviously, you know, oh, yeah. that's like the uh, Goliath yeah but like that changed the game for us consumers and y'all mm-hmm. you know like they actually doing the cooking and owning restaurants and stuff because we saw all those different things that we if you didn't know what was outside of Memphis you never knew that existed right? right and like when they especially when they started doing the traveling show I forget what it was called but this was like like 2005 or something like that there was a show where they, they had this lady and they went all over the world and she ate in a different city like every, I think it was like once a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you you, you, you obviously had the internet, but you never saw it like that, you know? And then that this, I thought that was really, really cool.
0: Yeah. You know, that kind of, for me, the food network too, also kind of made uh, being a chef, like a rock star status on a certain level, you know? Yeah. Look
2: at Guy Fieri. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the show you were talking about, I think is Guy's Grocery Games. Right. And then the Triple D one he has, mm-hmm. Those people that they go to, those shows that apply to be on the show, like it's game-changing if they get chosen because now you're a destination for people that you've never met. Sure. Oh, I saw you on the TV show. I mean, I'm going to be close to your city, so I'm going to shoot over and come to eat at your food.
0: No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, when you're on those shows, you get exposed to, let's just say the 6 million viewers, you know, that mm-hmm. night that tune in, you know. So, yeah, you immediately, I mean, I said uh food networks will change the game, but it also kind of softened the industry too because you got a lot of people who – didn't grow up wanting to do this wanting to do it all of a sudden uh whether it was for clout status or because oh it looked fun you know but when you get in there it's not really fun it's a very chaotic environment you know i always say that you know you've got like a blueprint of how your day is going to go and then you've got your day has started but then you interject people into it and then it just goes shit backs crazy sometimes you know and uh so managing people and, and managing the needs of people can be very hard and stressful, you know. So uh, Food Network kind of, yeah, I, we're, I'm happy for what they've done for our industry, but at the same time, they, they ushered in a certain change of the industry that sometimes doesn't work. You know, a lot of people, I think, probably have opened restaurants over the last 20 years because they saw someone open a restaurant on a culinary show. And what happens is, is they... They, they close in a year because they, they've got no idea how hard this is to really do sometimes, you know.
2: Yeah, because, you know, I see a lot of people posting stuff on Facebook about, oh, yeah, you know, I used to work there. I think I'm going to incorporate some ideas I got from there and open my own place up. Mm-hmm. That's great. But, I mean, do you know how much work that is? Yeah, like, I mean, do you even have a business plan? Do you yeah. have lenders?
0: Yeah, there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with the entrepreneurial spirit as long as it's focused and there's – and there's money involved to back it up, you know. Because it's going to take a lot of money. <laughs> no doubt, man. No doubt.
1: So how would you do on, like, a grocery game show or Chopped? I'd crush it, man. There's you think no you'd doubt. do oh, well? On have it? you ever applied for it? Well, so, yeah. So one time when Chopped was
0: here, they were doing a uh, late night kind of. They started doing some theme things for Chopped, you know, like a hangover food or all smoked meat. So they were doing this late night one. They were filming it out at Patrick's. In the parking lot, so I had this big white tent. So, right after I was on diners, drive-ins, and dives, like obviously, there's these shows create other shows for things, right? Like, like anything in life that you you create something that gravity people gravitate towards things spin off from it. So, I got a phone call from what's her name, the, the crazy spiked white haired lady that's on Anne Burrell. She got a show where you would go on and you would cook with three other chefs for the opportunity to be a chef at, like, these high-end restaurants. Well, they called me right after I'd opened Rizzo's. Uh, So I was on the Diners, drivers and Dives and Show, and then they just started calling, like, every few months. We want you to do this. Can you do this? Nine times out of ten, they pay for your flight out. They pay for your hotel room. Oh, wow. It's just being away from the restaurant for three to five days when you just opened one. That's tough. It was tough for me. I mean, if there'd have been managers in place, I mean, looking back, it could have been pulled off, but there was just things that I wasn't able to do to make that happen. But, um, so Chop was here. They had a late night one. Me and a couple other chefs were signed up for it. They also had alternate chefs. And what happened was, was I've been working for probably 40 days in a row. And I ended up getting walking pneumonia. Mm. I, was, Jesus. I was sick. And I waited and they told me too, if you're sick or you can't make it call us a day in advance. So I waited till like five PM because I thought I can shake this, no big deal. I'm over in the corner hiding by the damn walk in cooler door, like almost in because my body is just aching and rejecting telling you set your ass down. Yeah. So I called them and they were like, Oh, all right. So they they got um uh Alcinia's uh from she she's filled in for me and they filmed the episode and they aired it, but they aired it like two years later. So it kind of, um, I didn't understand that at the end of the day, but um, yeah, if they were to call me again now, I think, you know, I, I just, I have a feeling I would just crush it. I mean, I, I've got a personality for it. I've got a, a really calm demeanor about myself. I'm very knowledgeable about food. I'm very knowledgeable about cooking techniques and,
1: uh, yeah, I go in there and drop the culinary elbow on people, you know? Yeah. Cause I used to watch those shows I mentioned and then there was another show. It was on like, um, Esquire network called mm-hmm. knife fight. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, I, I forgot all fight. about that. Yeah. That was a yeah. really good show. I love when show. they would like pin, you know, pit two chefs against each other. Yeah. Y'all should probably do something like that here. Cause I know they do that with, uh, they're doing the bartender thing. Um, quick draw. Yeah. Yeah. With, draw. uh, a company, the guy just came here, Coop, uh, food,
0: drink, food, drink culture. culture yeah.
1: yeah. So maybe you could do that here, man, with a couple it, of chefs.
0: It would be fun. I know we've kicked around some ideas over the years. And one thing I've noticed about the Memphis area is that a lot of the chefs here, they, they want to pat you on the back and help you up versus compete against you. Mm. I mean, in essence, we are competing against each other, yeah. but that is a, it's such an underlining pushed down fact is that, you know, we're, we're jockeying for everyone's business, but like we, so the commercial appeal, 2013, maybe wanted to like, have these, uh, the categories of restaurants. And then they were going to kind of, you call in or you write in or you email your vote in, and it was, they were going to pick the best chef in Memphis, but in a kind of a categoried. So, well, like Felicia and Kelly and I think Andrew and Michael, those guys were like immediately against it because they were they felt like it was pitting us against each other, which it is, you know? Um, I didn't care one way or the other. My name was in the hat. It was nice to see it there, but um, I understood what they were saying. And, you know, when it come time to – when certain chefs are down or their restaurant's down, the restaurant Memphis Culinary Community really does pull together, so – uh, it would be kind of cool to do, though. I mean, yeah. I, I think it'd be great. Was you take you take a chef and another chef, and they go to someone else's restaurant, so they don't know the lay of the land, they don't know the cooler, they don't know what's there. Yeah. And then you cook for a bunch of drunk guys at two in the morning and, and whoever gets the loudest amount of the plums I think a show just right.
2: got created on LinkUp to Podcast today.
0: <laughs> I mean, that'd be awesome, dude. I'd be, I would love to watch that. I would love to be there I, while y'all are doing I, it. Though I think the allure would be going into someone else's kitchen. You yeah. Know, like you don't know if that one eye doesn't work because the, you know, the pilot's been clogged for two years and ain't <laughs> nobody cleaning it, you know, or, or the low boy cooler door falls off if you pull it wrong. I mean, those, those kind of elements would add to the,
2: the show excitement. could be called like Kitchen Swap. Like you know how they had that Wife Swap show, it could be called <laughs> Kitchen Swap. And like y- you would go work in Kelly English's kitchen or something, and then right. he would come to your kitchen. Like, dude, that'd be that'd be so cool.
0: Definitely, there's a culture for it. Definitely, there's, you know, I uh, I sometimes want to like put Guy Fieri in a headlock because he's kind of corner of the market when it comes to Food Network. But, you know, like you see these phases, you know, like right now, Ann Burrell's hot, you know, she's got her uh, parking lot grocery game competition. Then she's got Alex versus America. And then she's always guest judging on shows, you know, and like you kind of, I start, I'm starting to see cycles, you know, like, so they've been having these Guy Fieri grand champion championship culinary things. So they introduced four or five new chefs during this championship mm. series and I guarantee if you watch Food Network within 2 weeks of that show happening this competition the four new ones introduced have a culinary show mm. whether it's a culinary boot camp or it's a a program for troubled kids so it's not watched by a lot of people because it doesn't it only fits one particular niche but it gets them in the door and uh like I used to think about when they would have the next Food Network star like, so Guy Fieri won that first one. So the demographics at the time was mostly housewives. Yeah. Well, you got a guy who was like, kind of like a guy's guy, you know, spiky hair, wild shirts, tattoos. So now you got guys who were going to watch the show, you know, and then I think they had RT. Uh, she won, she was a, an Indian woman. Mm-hmm. You know? And then, so then she had, so, so they introduced like Indian cuisine. So now they've got another market. Right. And then, you had like, uh, I'm trying to remember the, uh, the other girl that won it, but you just, when they win these shows, they, they introduce a new chef or a new type of cuisine. And then they build, they try to build a, like, I don't know if you call it an empire, but they try to build shows around that type of programming. And you just see that. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's, there's definitely a recipe there that works. You know, um, I don't know what that recipe really is, but it, it seems like winners of shows get shows or they end up being guests on shows to encourage viewership for that type of demographic.
2: Do you think like those winners of the four that you just talked about, like the boot camp and the, the one that does the one for kids would have like, you know, bad kids or whatever yeah. it's called like. So they can work on their camera skills and stuff like that until they start becoming bigger and bigger?
0: I like that idea, yeah, because, you know, like, what I learned when I was on Diners, Drivers, and Dives, it's like, you know, they have the B-roll, you know. I really love the idea of the B-roll because they're – so they told me, like, all right, what you're wearing today, you have to wear tomorrow. If if you have a ring on your pinky finger, you have to have that same ring on your pinky finger. You know, if you have two bracelets on your left hand – if you take them off, you make sure you put them back on because we want it to look seamlessly when we blend in B-roll, A-roll for the show. So I, I definitely think smaller shows like that could help these culinary stars, yeah, gain some chops and get some experience. Yeah, it makes sense. I didn't even
2: realize. So it's how many days
0: was the shooting? Um, for two full days, but like three days. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so they came in the day before, and it was just me and the camera crew, and we went over. Like, you know, I couldn't say that I used Sprite. I had to say lemon and lime soda, you know, because they don't want to give Sprite money, you know. um, You know, like I purposely wore – because a friend of ours in the restaurant community was going through cancer. I purposely wore a fuck cancer bracelet, so – you can almost make out the words when I'm whisking. Yeah. And, uh, one of my friends saw that and they're like, Oh my God, you got the fucking answer bracelet. And I said, yeah, you know, I thought there's you know, an opportunity maybe to, to, to shoot my shot with that. Um, but, uh, the next day guy got there and then we filmed. And then the third day they kind of had us come back in and film one more moment where they felt like this was a good thing. We want to make sure we got three. Edits of it, so we can make sure it's done right. But yeah,
2: that's man, that's it's a lot that goes on to that. I have never thought about it like that because we just watched the thirty-minute episode that's on TV. You know, however yeah. long it is.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, twenty-one minutes, and and I, they've I've, we got a lot of airtime out of that. I mean, I think that show's aired thirty or forty times, and then the they did a fried foods only kind of expo on the on his show. So we got lumped into that episode only about six minutes, but you know that that show gave us some life with the lobster prono pup on a fried only guys show plus the regular
1: diners drive ins and dive show. So we're definitely happy to have it. So where did the name Rizzos come from? Well
0: when I when I wanted to open a restaurant I thought about just calling it, you know, Mike Patrick's place. I really did. Um, but I thought, you know, statistically, when most restaurants open, they don't last more than three years. I didn't want to drag my name to the mud. If we closed just getting open, I realized how hard it really, really was. And then I was a, I was a, when I was a kid, I was a rapper in this group and i wanted to call it maybe deluxe catering and just try to cater i was all over the place. i was a hot mess trying to get this restaurant open uh, my mother had just passed away like months before and, and her name was vana so i thought about maybe name it after my mother's vana is a very unique yeah. name you know but then i didn't want to hear southerners bastardize her name with some vana you know <laughs> so yeah you're right you Rizzo's came from, when I was in high school, the Howard Stern Show was a pretty big deal. And we would uh smoke cigarettes or weed on our way to school, and we'd listen to Howard Stern Show in my buddy Jimmy's car. And they had a segment on the show, and almost like clockwork at 8.02, the Jerky Boys would come on. And the Jerky Boys crank-called people, so we would love to listen to these things. One of their monikers, one of their... Sidiums was, uh, Frank Rizzo, who was the mayor of Philadelphia in the late eighties. He was crazy. He kind of, he wrote tickets to cops who were illegally parked. He, (laughs) his brother was on the fire department, was fire chief. So he locked in the city council. He locked the doors and told him he was going to burn it down if they didn't come to a decision on this, whatever it was. So he was kind of an oddball and people were really familiar with the name. So, when they were getting caught in their crank call, so the call usually involved, like, hey, we're coming to your house to fix the roof, you know, and, and they were like, what, what, what are you talking about? Are you coming to the house to fix my roof, you know, and they would, yeah, and then they would get a little more aggressive call people numb nuts and fuck face and asparagus breath and, uh, sizzle chest was a big one, you know. So, um, I would call my friends these names. I would come up with a, a, whatever, your a pizza face <laughs> was a big one, when we were kids, you know, or, Um, what are you drinking your mom's cold coffee you got coffee breaths quit breathing on me over here man it's tight in this back seat of this car when you got five people in a car so um when i would get in the car they're like ah here comes rizzo what do you what do you got today rizzo what are you gonna say today you know (laughs) so they call me rizzo for yeah i had (laughs) i was you know i was ghost in the neighborhood growing up i was deluxe was my rap name and they would call me rizzo so i had a lot of names and uh that stuck for a good summer so i thought Why don't I call it Rizzo's? First of all, I can still be a smart aleck about it because people are going to think it's Italian. It's not. (laughs) It's also fun to say, Rizzo's, easy to roll off the tongue. And uh, it also had something that was a part of me, you know, whether no one here knew how I grew up. I moved here in 97. You know, this stuff was going on in, you know, 90, 88, you know, but it gave me an opportunity to tell a story to somebody like I'm doing now. It gave my staff something to talk to the guest about when they ask. And hell, people from Chicago loved me. They would call me. I had at least a dozen phone calls in that 11 years we were open from Rizzo's in Chicago. So like, hey, I'm Chuck Rizzo. Which side of the family are you on? You know? (laughs) Hey, I do. I do t-shirts. Can I do some shirts for you? I saw you on uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives. You know? And and I have to tell them, my name's Mike Patrick, man. I'm not really a Rizzo, you know? And uh, so it was fun. And like I said, I still got to be a little bit of a smart aleck, even in my forties, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good story. Didn't you used to be on the other side? Of, uh, was it GE Patterson? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. We were in a small spot there. I mean, it was, you know, 380 feet, you know, um, so that was the original location. Yeah. And then when did you move up to where you were at in 2014? Uh, I had a three year lease around the corner. So we opened in October of 2011. And by May of 2012, we were on diners, drive ins and dives. Like, oh, wow. um, we knew we had something good, but. Uh, so Guy Fieri said, you know, when you, that show airs, your sales are going to go up 40%. I promise you. It just happens. It's called the Fieri effect. You know, I'm like, oh, calm down, dude. Yeah. And, but, uh, he was like, get some keychains, get some coffee cups, make some shirts, you know, and then I, you know, for me, I, maybe I should have done it, but I didn't want to be a whore to the industry at that point in time either, you know, but there are, you know, he was like, you don't even have to, uh, the lady after he left, the director of it, she, she told me to, get the hell away from my landlords. And if you don't want to sell them directly at your store, there are websites that will sell shirts for you. You know, I just didn't have time to deal with it. I probably could have made a pretty penny, you know, uh, selling some Rizzo shirts to, especially Memphis being such a tourist location. But after the show, we we were, we were, we were literally getting bigger and bigger. We were expanding into this back room that was uneven. The roof blew off on at one point in time, I had a party back there We expanded into a jewelry store that was part of the landlord's, and it was a real shady door that if you touched it the wrong way, you would get electrocuted. Hmm. Me and my staff would joke about, yeah. (laughs) Well, like two 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 people that ate there felt it and was like, oh, I just got shocked. Oh, that's nothing, you know. Must be rubbing your feet on the carpet, (laughs) you know, (laughs) trying to blow it off. So when it came time to either, A, move, because the lease was up about six months before that, I said, Hey, can we expand to the outside? So I don't know if you notice that spot on G Patterson, we laid some concrete and they put up a fence. I was wanting to do an enclosed patio, similar to what uh, Aldo was doing at, oh, at yeah. the pizza place down on, on uh, main street where we could enclose it during part of the year. But the landlord really didn't, didn't see the vision that I had in it. We'd already spent $3,000 laying the concrete And, uh, you know, it's probably going to be another 10 or 12 grand to build this little support. Because when you open the front door to that place during the wintertime, it would just freeze the whole dining room for eight seconds. And during the summertime, it was just sweltering heat. So we moved around the corner of the spot on Main Street in uh, in 2014. Yeah. What
1: was there before? Do you know or remember?
0: Yeah. um, So in the spot on Main Street, it was a jazz club there forever that um, Melvin owned. What was it called? Mm. It was a jazz club for about ten or twelve years. Okay, that was open sporadically. Uh, you know, me and Melvin, we had a backstory where he hired me to cook for Brooks and Dunn, which is like a country band. Yeah. I guess um, they were at the FedEx Forum. They wanted somewhere private. So he rented out the space to them. I came in his kitchen and cooked. The kitchen was a shithole. It was just horrible. <laughs> and I brought in my two buddies to help. And, and then Melvin didn't want to pay me. And I, and then when he did pay me, I swear to you, this guy paid me with a paper sack full of nickels, quarters, oh. and about 120 and crumpled up money. Just like he purposely did it this way to me. So I don't know. I, I, I told him in anger that one day I was going to get his place and I was going to be in there. So it kind of, was nice like eight years later there i was in his place you know and and, uh you should have sent him a a pin drop hey come uh, eat my restaurant (laughs) he came he looked in the window a couple times you know as he was walking by and it it was a some good feel to that but uh, at the same time you
1: hate to see anybody have to close you know yeah yeah so what is the going from opening to when you decide to close it down like how what is that feeling like Oh my god, it's a roller coaster, man! It's a—it was bittersweet, you know. Like opening a restaurant
0: is exciting because you just there's so many variables, um, you know, like to call the, the city and get them to find a place for you to put your dumpster. That was like a two week process for me. Our dumpster ended up being behind Max's in an alley, two blocks away from the restaurant. Oh, really? so if you're my dishwasher, oh god, at the end of the night you're taking two, three. 200-pound blue barrels on wheels down Butler across the street of G. Patterson and up the alley behind Max's. It's a hard sell to some dishwashers. Like, I ain't doing this, dude. Are you fucking crazy? And then you've got like a woman who will come in to apply, and you don't want to deny her that ability, but you want to say, I don't want a woman walking a 200-pound garbage can down an alley in Memphis, Tennessee at 11 o'clock on a Friday night. So that that was hard um you know getting permits signed off on uh it's a good old boy club here
2: and 100%. if you're not yeah
0: if you're not a good old boy it's an old boy situation cuz it was old boy you know getting people to come in and sign off on electric sign off on fire sign off on water you know you have to track this guy down and then and then they want to know if you're a good old boy. Like they'll ask you, you know, like, oh, your last name's Patrick. Well, you do you know Johnny Patrick from Arlington. You're like, no, I don't know Johnny. Maybe we're related, but I don't know him. Oh, okay. Where'd you grow up at? Cleveland. Oh, Mississippi or Tennessee? Ohio. Click. You know, like it. It was, it was weird. So getting the chance to open up something. There was a couple times in my life where I was invited to these duck hunts, mm. duck clubs. And the guys that grew up together and, you know, usually they're old Miss Jackoffs, you know. Yeah. Just, you know, I, I'm not trying to diss the whole community of Mississippi here, but, you know, a lot of these guys in Arkansas and, and, hell, Memphis, too. But so it'd be 10 or 12 guys with some money. And they have a duck club that their grandfather had, that their father had. And, you know, there'd be some little old African-American lady, you know, Ella, who's 70. She's been cooking. She cooked for their grandfathers you know so you go in and usually what they'll do is they'll give you like a $2,000 like just cash you know like hey we're going to bring in some ducks we want you to bring in a bunch of accoutrements and then you make us dinner breakfast and lunch for two days and you can make like three or four grand doing this so it's cool and all I I did it twice and I just I don't want to do this no more you know Um, but there was a moment there when I was at Itabina where a few of these guys were like they wanted me to open a restaurant they were willing to throw money in you know and when they found out I was from Cleveland, Ohio, the money train got stopped. You wow. Know? It's so Because wild. I wasn't from, it. I didn't go to Christian Brothers. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't go to Ole Miss or I didn't go to Memphis State back in the day, you know, so it, there was some great satisfaction opening my own place and mm-hmm. partnering with a guy like Mr. Burroughs, um, who owned the building, but he's also an affluent black male who's worth millions of dollars in his town. So I kind of, it was, it was a neat dichotomy of how this system works in this town of like who you know and what you know, because I, mean, I didn't know anybody. I just had a back and some skill, you know. Yeah. So we get open. You, you you're staffing people. You're, you know, you're in a town, in an area of town that was just kind of getting back on its feet again. So there was some excitement that the city was actually pumping money into South Maine. But then you also had the resistance of the the whole reason South Main was happening was because about four or five people bought some buildings on the courthouse steps for like 10 grand because no one had been in them for 20 or 30 years. The roofs were caving in. And so they felt like other businesses moving into the area that for all intents and purposes is their fault because they renovated the building. Mm. Um They, they felt like the city giving us money to open buildings was taking a handout to the city that would then put the landlord on the dime to the city. You see what I'm saying? Like, so they didn't want to feel like they owed the city anything, but they weren't doing enough to get the area pumped up. So you bring in a few restaurants, you bring in a couple, you know, like, don't get me wrong. The Arcade Nursing Hazels are the tower, you know, they're, they're the pillars of South Maine. But that's all there was down there for yeah. many years. You know, like when I first moved here in 97, some people wanted me to meet them at Ernestine and Hazel's. I started walking down the street like one in the morning. And I got past MLG and W and I'm like, what the, where the hell am I? You know, yeah, uh, broken windows, boarded windows. So I waved down a cab. He dropped me off at Ernestine and Hazel's. When I got out, I really thought these guys were hazing me and that or. I was going to get robbed, you know, but then I opened the door and I seen Hazel's. There's 80 people in here and the music's flowing and everyone's having a good time. But getting back to South Main. So it was it was like pulling teeth for a little bit. But once you do endear yourself to the community in Memphis, they will support you. There is no doubt about it. Once they know that you're not there to exploit them or, or make fun of their the southern culture that's here. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a snarky Midwesterner. I don't have a hard time busting your balls or telling a joke. But if you're sincere and you really do care about the neighborhood or you really do care about the people around you, they'll support you. And, and that's what happened for us there. We were definitely supported pretty well. I really, hell, I mean, we, we would still be there and I would still be open if, complications of covid in the relationship between my landlord hadn't changed things and maybe if i hadn't gotten married maybe you know i got married during all this too and you you start thinking things differently once you're married um i'm glad i'm old enough not to have kids or want to have kids because that would be another layer of change you know yeah. so closing was really hard because a lot of people wanted me to stay open. I mean, there were people that came to me in private and said, you know, what do you need? What do you need to stay open? You know, or could we start a GoFundMe? And I said, I don't want us to look desperate because we weren't desperate. And then you want things to go well with the people that got you to the show, you know? So I didn't want to go and say, you know, the landlord used money from the restaurant to fix the floor, because that's what happened, you know, and, and yes, that he, you know, the response was, well, you, we suspended rent for a year during COVID. So I'm just, well, then let's list it as that on paper. You know, this was a, an expense used to recoup lost rent funds, not just take the money out and pay for the floor to get fixed. Because, you know, you have, you have a business partner who's also your landlord. Mm. So the, the the dynamic changed a little bit, you know. And then you know the ability to want to have a better quality of living. Uh, the restaurant business has been nothing but good to me, you know. There's, but it's been hard, you know. And I just, you know, it's if, if anyone tells you it's easy, they're they're just lying. <laughs> it's just just straight up. I mean, it's easy for maybe the the guy who's throwing the money in because he's got his own business too. And, and don't get me wrong, his business is hard, you know. But if someone says to you, oh, man, open a restaurant, everything's been great since day one, it's, it's not true. Yeah. You know, It's just there's so many, so many variables, so many different things can happen because you're it, – it's not all black and white, you know, and, and managing the gray areas is the hardest part. And, that, and it's the most important part, managing the gray areas, you know. You've got employees who are sick, or you got an employee who, you know. One of the things that I noticed a lot, and in, in, uh, you know, it, it's a neat dynamic to talk about, but it's sad at the same time. So, a lot of restaurant staff members are usually African American males who have been into prison. Let's just be, you know, be honest yeah. about that. You know, and what happens is, is there's a culture that's that's been created here. Long before I was here, I've only been here 25 years, so we're talking, let's just say, a 100 years. You got a guy who's 16 who smokes some weed and gets in trouble. He goes to jail. Let's just say he doesn't go. He gets a ticket, but he gets with something else again, DUI or drunk at public intoxication, or let's just say he was smoking weed again, sitting on the corner doing nothing, not hurting anybody. He goes to jail. So when he gets out of jail, he realizes his license got suspended. So... He wants to be good about it, so he's going to take the bus system. Well, the bus system in this town fucking sucks. I, I rode the bus system. I, I didn't have a license until 2017 from not having a license from 1991 uh, for some stupid shit I did a long time ago. Yeah. But this guy is now, he's got a job. He's trying to pay off his fines. He's taking the bus to work. Well, the bus system sucks, so he's late. Mm -hmm. Not just one day a week, but let's just say two to three days a week. So he gets told by his boss or somebody, his manager that, you know, if you're late again, man, I got it. We're going to have to move on from you, you know? So he starts driving his girlfriend's car again without a license. So he's driving dirty, you know, he's riding dirty. And and let's just say that works for a month or two and then he gets pulled over. He goes back to jail. So the cycle just continues. So... um. That's one of those great areas you got to manage. Okay. Well, Ronnie's a good guy, man. He didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. He's just trying to get to work. Yeah. Do I hold his job for him for three days because he's in jail and he's going to get out on Monday, but damn it. I got to run a business, you know, mm. um, someone who's been with you for two years, who's never been late once slips and breaks their foot. You know, I've been the kind of type of business owner would say, I'll hold your job for 30 days. You know, I've had employees who were pregnant and it and worked until the day the baby dropped you know and be, and you want them and you tell them you don't have to come to work this week you're in your oh, I yeah. need to work I need to work you know oh <laughs> jesus christ you, you know so um and I'll give them you know 30 days paid leave after that I I got to fill the job in 30 days I to me is fair but it's not at all I mean you you just had a brand new baby or maybe you got your third baby and You've got two other kids you're trying to watch today. You got to make more money for a babysitter. Where, where does that come from? You know, so you got to kind of manage those types of things. You got to find out who's really sincere to your business because nobody loves your business as much as you will. You know, like I tell people when they say to me, I'm going to give you 110% and I'll say, well, just give me the 84 that I'm looking for and we'll be happy because life happens. Shit happens. Yeah. That's one thing. He's not that- done talking. Oh, sorry, <laughs> this <is> my bad. <laughs> so closing was very hard because then now you're looking at people who came back to work for you after COVID, you know, who stuck with you through COVID. Two or three of them, and you're telling them that I'm closing. You don't. There's no way for you to make any more money right now unless you go get another job. And then you hope they stick with you the last 30 days because, you don't. there are people and there are jobs I've had where I showed up and the lock was on the door because they didn't want to tell you that they were closing because they didn't want the whole staff to quit on them. You know, so I took the approach of, hey, I'm closing in 30 days. There's going to be an article in the paper tomorrow. I want you to hear it from me tonight. Yeah. And. If you can stay the whole thirty days, that's great. And if you can't, I get it. I know how shit happens. I know how things are. And ninety-five percent of them, you know, like one person left me. You know, the rest stayed for the rest of the thirty days because I told them what's going to happen is there's going to be a windfall here? Where people are going to want to eat here for the last time. And those last three weeks were open were the best weeks I've had since previous to COVID, you know, and there's a tongue in cheek moment where someone says, oh man, it's going to be my last meal here. Well, And you want to say, well, you hadn't been here in three months or two years, or, you know, um, I've had people reach out to me since we've closed that say, well, we've had our anniversary with you every year for the last nine years. Those are awesome moments. You've, you've changed someone's life through food. So it's, it's <clears> awesome. So opening is Hard and closing is hard, and there's really no blueprint to it either. I mean, I tried to reach out to a couple people who have closed restaurants before. Like, what do you do? What's, you know, and I had a very unique scenario where my business partner said, all right, we're not happy right now. We could be open. We could make this happen. But what do you need to be happy? And I said, well, I need to make more money or get back to what I was making from the restaurant pre-covid. Yeah. It's just not there. He said, "Well, can you find a job that'll give you more money?" I said, "Of course I can't." And he said, "Well, then go go do that. You've paid off a majority of this loan. He gets a turnkey restaurant. Uh so when he's trying to lease this restaurant to somebody, he can say to them, you know, you don't need this 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 or this true it, and it, it is a very unique opportunity for somebody who's wanting to open a restaurant have always wanted to open a restaurant or recently closed one and want to get back in to be able to turn the key and everything's there tables chairs bar built you know quality product to not just some little dirty shit show you know um so yeah it, there there is a lengthy process in all of it and uh you know, I won't say I won't ever go there again, but um, it was definitely one of the hardest things I did in my life. But life's easier now.
1: Now, would you say that some of the struggle was possibly the employees, too, because you didn't want to feel like you were abandoning them? Oh, for sure. I
0: mean, you create a connection with people every day. You know, When but when you work with them every day or they come to you with private personal problems and they and they want you to somehow assist them on it alleviate the worry you know um how many back pocket loans i've made in this lifetime if if everyone owed me money gave me back money i, I, I could probably take a year off you know? damn but <laughs> at the same time um when you uh love people who. Like, you know, I love, I generally love people. I think people are pretty awesome. It's a shame they're so shitty, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, I love people. I love making new friends. I love sharing memories with them. So when you, when you have that almost empath ability to like really like people, you'll go the extra mile for them. Like there have been many conversations where I've said to people, I believe in you more than you believe in yourself. And when you do that, you physically say that to somebody, you not only have told them this, but you've made a commitment to yourself to go that extra right. mile for them because now you believe in them more than they do, or, or at least that's what's being said between the both of you. So with – and I think with a lot of things is like there are false expectations set forth for people that you might have, and you're like, yeah, I see Johnny's been doing dishes for me for nine months, so now he's doing some prep. Well, I think he's going to be an awesome line cook. So in your brain, you've already worked out a way that you're going to move him up. He's going to be a line. cook. Well maybe, well, maybe Johnny doesn't want to be a fucking line cook, you know, and he's just doing this job to make a little scratch while he's starting a lawnmower business, you know? Yeah. So, but if you, so for me, what I've learned most in this culinary life is just to have an expectation level that's communicated to everybody, like, and, and the accountability, you know, like, um, so, yeah. I mean, people are just, it, it is, uh, like I said, manager that gray area. You're, you're, you become a steward to these employees on a certain level of making their life easier on something. You know, you're giving them the ability to buy gas, buy underwear, you know, um, put food on their table. And if you can't do that for them, then did you fail them? You know, are, are you the, you know, what's that old t- Are you the victim or the crime? You know, in, in that, and you don't want to be either. You just want to, You just want to run your own business and not have to work for the man, you know, or or whatever that saying is, you know, (laughs) Uh, we all got to serve somebody, right? I mean, uh, but yeah, people, when you, once you interject people into something, it goes, whatever thoughts, plans, blueprints you had definitely change immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Now, would you ever uh, like do like a food truck or
1: something like that? It's
0: possible. You know, I've had people reach out to me that's want me to cater for them, you know, and I've told them that. With enough days advance notice, you know, and, and I'm kind of getting this set schedule. I could do that. Um, but then I just kind of, I just want to do something really good now for a while, mm. you know. And, yeah. and we were always doing something good with the restaurant. You know, one of the things that also enticed me to Capitol Grill was they wanted to reconnect with the community. Like, they do this harvest uh part of the house where we donate our extra food at the end of the night to the union mission. Okay. Nobody oh, wow. knows awesome. that, you know, yeah. it's not out there. And, and a few other restaurants do this for the union mission. We feed up to 700 guys a week, you know, because wow. there is a homeless problem in Memphis, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we do that program. Well, I used to do a lot of charity work. You know, I always felt like if you give back to the community, they're going to give back to you. So we did this, you know, and, and, um, You know, a lot of that comes from my mom, you know, doing things with the church, through the church when I was a little kid. But um, anyways, that was one of the things that enticed me about going there, too. I mean, yeah, they're a corporate organization, and they do have, but I'm going to tell you, their blueprint works. There's 61 of them in the United States. There's a reason for that. It's not because their system doesn't work, you know. And what I'm learning and trying to help the new people that's been injected into my life, you know, the... The Dre and the D and the Raphael is that if you just do what they tell us to do, it's going to be just fine. It's going to work out, you know. If if everything you're doing is for the guest and is guest driven, we're going to be all right. And I said the horrible thing is though is that you know I I didn't know that Raphael blew a motor, you know, on his truck today, and he's fucking pissed off about it. So when he comes in, he brings that energy with him, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah, it, it, uh, <laughs> people, people are uh it's the only way you make the industry work, too. You have people come and eat. You have people who cook it, you know, and, uh, at the end of the day, though, it, it is a juggling act. And I, I just, you know, if everyone would, there's a saying, you leave your problems at the door. You know, if everyone did that, it would be a great thing, you know. But also, if everyone did that, it, it wouldn't be maybe as fun. I mean, there is some excitement in, in chaos. You know, there is some uh, redemption stories when you go in here having a shit day, but you cook every steak perfect. You know, like your girlfriend broke up with you, you can't tell anybody because you don't want to cry in front of them, yeah. but you cook every chicken alfredo came out tonight was silky and sexy and and you can have that you can you say i did that you know no matter how shitty my day was i did that so there is some you know redeeming qualities in what we do that i think is instantaneous you know that's probably why i gravitated more towards the restaurant world was the instant gratification of things you know like there are people that work on a project for 6 months to see it through and they get a pat on the back and maybe they get a paycheck out of it. But for me, I get that every day by hearing a guest say, you know, that was the, the best salmon I ever had. And well, that's the best steak I had, you know, in months. Or I'll say, Oh, well, you don't eat many steaks. You know, I always try to downplay <laughs> But, um, that's just, uh, it's where we're at with people. I think, you know, so did you have to develop a lot
1: of empathy or do you already have that?
0: I, I have that. My mom gave me that, you know, um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, been a lot many emotional moments in my, in my life that i've had with with people that you know and the hard part is when you are empathetic that maybe they don't feel the same way you do you know <laughs> so you get this caught up you get caught up in the moment you know and then they're not caught up at all they're just like shit i you know some people are like oh i just got this guy to buy into giving me the 80 dollars i need to, to get this tire you know and uh
1: but yeah, yeah, it was always it was always there, you know. I think that's a good thing to have, though. I would rather be empathetic and help people out than be like, you know, just an asshole and think everybody's going to be out to get you. Totally agree with yeah. that. Yeah, you know, because that's on them. Like, you can only control your actions. Mm-hmm. You can't control other people's actions. So it's like they say, you keep your side of the street clean. You don't right. worry about the other person.
2: Control the controllable. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys seen like a short? I'm probably not, maybe not a Capital Grill, but like, how are these restaurants staying staffed? Because everywhere you see, you hear people like, "We have, oh, we all have friends that work in restaurants and right. stuff, right?" And they're like, "Dude, we're getting our ass kicked. We have, we don't have enough people."
0: I think part of that is is fake. Don't get me wrong. When you have these companies that let's just say you know. TJR Fridays, Chili's, whatever. There, there's enough staff for them. They just don't want to give them 40 hours. They don't want to give them 48 hours. Some Most people don't mind working 45, 50 hours. Mm-hmm. Get that overtime, time and a half, whatever it may be. But, yeah, the, I experienced it right towards the end there. It was really hard to staff the restaurant when we got back open. But um, the places are still open. They're still running, you know. Um I believe that there, there was an opportunity after everything shut down. Supposedly everything shut down, but not everything did. You know? yeah. But for the most part, most restaurants, like I closed for three months for in-dining, but I didn't close for carry-out business, right? So you can run that on a three-, four-man show. But um, there was a moment for the first time in my Knowledge, maybe since World War II, when everyone left to, to go fight, that the playing field would have had the opportunity to be leveled. You know, like most. So we live in a city that's close to a million in population. We've got about two thousand restaurants here. So every restaurant has like that core three or four that are total badasses that you need them every day. They need you because they're making great money. But everyone's out to get them from you, too, because mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. It, like I said, we we may say that we care about each other and we'll, we'll pull through for somebody. But deep down, underneath that layer, we're all in competition with each other. We're jockeying for everybody's business. The cool thing is if you do that math, you know, you got almost a million people, two thousand. There's plenty of people to feed. And there's plenty of people to go around. So, um, But for the first time, the playing field was level. There were some people who had been at Erlen Jensen's for 18 years who wasn't working. There have been some people who worked for Kelly English for – nine years who weren't working that if you knew them through Facebook or a friend in Facebook or follow their brother's Instagram, or even their Instagram, you had an opportunity to reach out to them and say, Hey, you know, Mm. I want you to be a part of my team. I've been watching you for many years at tsunami and damn, David, you're awesome. And can, would you consider coming over here? And then, you know, also, there was a time where a lot of people in the restaurant industry after COVID got to do something they never got to do before, which was have time to do the things they always wanted to do. So for two, three, four months there, if you wanted to brew your own beer, but you never had time to monitor it all, you <laughs> yeah. started brewing your beer in your garage and now you got a beer chain, you know, well, there's a lot of breweries here. There's a lot of people who are buying home brews. You had, People who are making cocktails out of the trunks of their car and selling to people at their door. So the entrepreneurial spirit, I think, is such alive and well that and the human spirit, when times are down, we're going to hustle, we're going to do whatever we can do to make money, to provide. So a lot of people got to do things that they always wanted to do or didn't do, couldn't do, so they didn't return to the industry. Well, the, the ones who did return, maybe they didn't go back to the same job they had for 12 years, you know? So it is hard, yeah. especially right now. And you do hear and you do see like, if you, like I'm a member of the Memphis uh, restaurant hiring page and every day, 10 or 12 restaurants put it there that they're hiring, you know, I, part, part of me is like, well, where in the hell are the people, you know? But I said, I get, I think they're doing things, you know, there there are guys who play football, on a streaming device and get paid. You know, that's crazy to me. But, they're making bank yeah, yes. doing that, man. Um, you know, somewhere out there, there was a 22-year-old dishwasher who loved playing Madden. And when COVID hit, he stopped. And he started this, and he trash talking. He's He was like, bitch, motherfucker, I'm going to kick your ass so, And then all of a sudden, he, he noticed he had seven viewers, and he had 20 viewers. Now he has a 1,000 viewers. And then he started doing the whole, why don't you throw me a dollar since you're watching me for 20 minutes. And now he's making like $2 million a year playing football, yeah, doing yeah. what he loves doing, sitting in his fucking beanbag in his mom's basement. <laughs> you know? So I, mean, I can't blame them yeah. for not wanting to come back to the restaurant industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that really felt like this was a governmental conspiracy to cut out the blue collar restaurant industry. Like I, so then I would say to them, you know, like, Oh, so you're talking about, uh, demolition man where Taco Bell wins the food wars, right? You know, I would just kind of throw a little shade their way. Um, but there was a, you know, they said over 10,000 restaurants closed in 2020. Um, but 6,000 new ones opened up in 20. So, okay. All right. We lost 4,000. You know, here in Memphis, we lost a good dozen and a half to 20 restaurants, uh, immediately. And I think they said we have a total of f- like 48 restaurants that closed, mine being one of them. But we've also opened up 57 new restaurants in the city. So, yes there's a vacuum and how are the restaurants doing it but how are they doing it you know like I, i think sometimes when the sky is falling it's the whole world's ending but really just it's just a comet that's in the sky you know and i think maybe sometimes things get blown up a little bit bigger than what they are and and maybe that's what's going on deep down but i mean i the restaurants are still open you know i just think that the hardest part of it all is when you are eating at that restaurant, you're watching that one bartender try and serve the whole bar and wait at the dining room, you know. Um, but you know, it's it's on the owners then. So the owners either step up and hire more and lose money, or close the door and do the right thing. I mean, like like closing my restaurant was bittersweet because we did a great thing. It was a wonderful chapter in my life, you know. Like, but my but owning a restaurant wasn't what defined me, you know. Yeah. So um i feel like you know this thing with capital grill that's just another chapter in life you know but i mean it just got too hard to stay open to be let's just you know be honest you know i think a lot of these people who own restaurants maybe need a little self-reflection and say to themselves is it worth putting my staff through this
1: type of shit to make fifty eight thousand dollars a year you know so it sounds like you don't have an ego
0: Nah, I, I checked out a real long time ago. Yeah,
1: because it seems like most people that would want to just keep going is because they don't want to look like a failure and they're right. worried about other people's opinions instead of, like you said, doing what's right.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, all good things do come to an end, right? I mean, yeah. all, th- I mean, you know, for me, like, like I got sober 14 years ago. And, you know, when you're blowing cocaine boogers out of your nose to dry them out in the microwave, to chop them up, to re snort them you ain't got no more ego you can't have ego if you're doing that because you're a slave to something you're you're addicted to something you know and and i was able to shake that and i feel i feel like i'm a better person because i was able to beat addiction but also because i was able to to look at myself and, and and say you know because there were thousands of times over a few year time period like i wasn't a Addicted for years, I was addicted for about nine months, but it had been like a three-year goings mm-hmm. on. And every time you do something that you know you don't want to do or shouldn't do, you say, "Ah, oh, man, I'm never going to do that again." And then, as you're going to try to sleep for six hours, you wipe your finger across that plate, and you're right back at it again. So I, I just was tired of lying to myself. And I mean, when you get to a certain place in your life, I mean, how can you have an ego if that's if if every day you get off work. All you're doing is giving your money to your dope dealer in order to make it and and you're just you're holding on by a string you know so i've i've always enjoyed cooking for people and and I do get the uh the excitement and joy of cooking for people but uh, yeah i'm not i'm not, i'm not back there going yeah I'm a fucking badass man, look at this shit you know, and I would rather let people tell me i'm great than tell myself i'm great you know? mm, yeah. So how did you know you had an addiction problem? Well, <laughs> seeing other people around me have addiction and say that. You know, like, there's kind of this... Uh, when when you're a crackhead, you're horrible. Mm-hmm. But if you do cocaine and you do it on the daily, it's different, you know? Um Rich man's drug. Yeah. Also, um, those, those three months I talk about, I was getting paid a paycheck and when i cashed that paycheck 2 or 300 dollars of it went to my dope dealer cuz he would give me coke on the front cuz he knew he was going to get the money cuz one of the, one of the one one things i you know like wouldn't do is i didn't drink on the job and i didn't do drugs on the job cuz i thought i was better mm-hmm. right I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not an addict i, I don't drink to wake up in the morning to calm my nerves I don't have to have a, a shot a jack and a beer to go be normal but sure as hell when I got off work like I worked for this so I'm gonna do four shots of Jaeger and three double vodka tonics in the first hour I'm off then I'm shit face blitz well how do I maintain oh I can do a few key bumps so call my dope dude up, meet me at this bar and then I'm on for the rest of the night and I'm okay when it got to that point that's when I knew that I was addicted you know mm. like um, you know, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a good time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with using controlled substances as long as you're able to maintain. And, and that's, you know, but when you start lying to yourself, lying to your family, or if you start lying to your wife, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, or husband, then, then you might have some issues that need to be addressed, you know, for addiction. Um, it was hard at first. It was I had to change where I was going, what I was doing. I'm like I used to sit at the bar at Huey's every night, every night for nine years, ten years. Like, you know, I am quite sure I paid the electric bill there. And people yeah. say that, I paid the electric bill here. Well, I probably did a couple times, you know. And the people who saw me, I was a good time drunk too. I was I was really good at drinking and I had a good time doing it. And, like, like, the bartenders that I made friends with who knew intimate details about my life that the people next to me didn't know. When I told them, hey, I quit drinking, I've called you, he's told Dave Carlisle, I'm not coming in, you know, I'm, I'm not dead. I didn't break my leg. I just, I'm quitting drinking in order to stop doing cocaine. You don't have an alcohol problem, Mike. When you're in here, you're having a great time, you know. but. What he don't know is that when I leave there, I'm you know yeah. doing a freaking eight ball cocaine, you know just to just to be normal, you know. So yeah, it was. <laughs> that's when I knew I was an addict. You know, it's like those when when you're paying more for your drugs than you are for your rent, or when you're scraping by, but you're okay with getting high. I, I think you have addiction issues then.
1: Yeah, yeah, addiction's a weird thing, man. It's um. You know, certain things, some people can do it, and it disaffects them just fine. I mean, it doesn't affect them like it affects other people. But like you said, if you're having a problem and you're not able to afford stuff because of a substance, then that is an issue. Yeah, And that's a big thing to look inward and be like, hey, I do have a problem. Because a lot of people don't want to look inward. Oh, yeah. No, it's scary to do that because then you got to look at yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to blame other people. Oh, no, but it's not no easy doubt. to blame ourselves.
0: How long have you been sober for now? It'll be 14 years August 16th, you know. So it's it's almost like one of my uh, lifetime friends, Chris Lucchese, tells me there are more people who know you now sober than knew you when you were drinking and using drugs. Mm-hmm. And he's right, you know, like it's kind of like a you know, I want to say like owning a restaurant and everything was a chapter in my life Well, you know being a crazy drunk coked out dude was a chapter of my life you know i've been able to move on from there and yeah he's right i mean either most of them have moved on died or uh they we just don't hang out anymore because i'm i'm not on their level you know yeah
1: now did you lose a lot of friends because they're like oh you don't party so we don't want to hang out with you or did you choose not to hang out with them yeah i lost some drinking
0: buddies no doubt about it you know people that i thought were my friends we were just we were just doing drugs together and getting drunk together and and there's some camaraderie in that but what happens, I think, is you know we we are as humans like so fragile that we interpret kindness as friendship, or we interpret watching a football game with somebody one time that that's my friend now, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe they're not your friend, you know. You, you do share common interests, but you know, like I tell people, if I haven't sent you a birthday card or called you and sang you happy birthday, then we're not really great friends. Because uh, so yeah, I did. There was some people that really stuck through there with me. But there were some people that definitely I felt like, wow, you know, we're not talking because we're not doing cocaine together anymore, you know. But I've gained a lot of friends since then, you know. And, and the AA community here, though being Bible-driven, is a strong community. And, and, and there are some of the old – they call them old-timers as people that are like 25 years sober who, who will – identify certain people and kind of signal them out and you know you've got the there's a guy we call him yoda because he's just got this zen about him this energy you know i want to be a fucking
1: yoda man
0: you know you'll you'll get there for sure
1: (laughs) now did you uh like were you a binge drinker
0: oh for sure man like like i could buy a 12 pack and it would sit in my refrigerator for two weeks but if I was out drinking, I was out drinking. Like yeah. I would get off work and I would, you know, you I pound would, them. Yeah. Eat many the a you them. know, you do three or four wise men. I call them three wise men. And so, Oh, God, Jagermeister, Cinnamon Shots, and Goldschlager, layered. they're all very high proof liquors and they're all very sweet, you mm-hmm. know, but you know, and then there would be times where we were at Dam McGinnis, you know, like, um, you had mentioned earlier about I was not always back of the house. You know, I bartended at Dam McGinnis. Because I felt like I wanted to own a restaurant one day. I needed to know how to bartend. But I got to really liking Guinness beer, you know. And I noticed that a lot of people don't like Guinness beer. So I would get one of these country boy, old Miss-looking guys, and I'd say, I bet you I can out-drink you Guinnesses tonight, you know. I said, if I lose, I pay both our tabs. If you lose, you pay both our tabs, And I would slam four or five Guinness in the first two or three minutes when they might slam one, but by that third one, their chin's kind of resting in it and they're, you know, it's it's, it's just (laughs) two. Guinness is heavy as fuck. It is, but, you know, when you start pounding, it's like chocolate milk, you know, on a certain level. At least it felt like that way to me, you know. So, yeah, I mean, but it wasn't also though like, binge drinking so much that I couldn't get up the next day and do my job, you know. It was just I had a certain window to get in all I could get in. And, and Absolutely. I just, and I just did, you know, and, and work in the restaurant business too. We don't, you know, we didn't go to concerts. We don't go to shows at the Orpheum. We don't go to FedEx Forum because you guys are coming out to go to those shows, you know. So I always wanted to kind of, if, if this restaurant thing expanded, I made was making money was to like, you know, open something that's open from midnight to seven that was constructive, not just a bar, but you know. Put, put golf course in a parking garage. Start at the top, go all the way to the bottom. But things that restaurant people could do besides go out and drink because that's what we do when we get off work. It's the only thing open is bars. Mm. You know? Yeah. So.
1: Now, I mean, obviously, it's a good thing you're sober, but especially now since the whole fentanyl pen, you know, sure. epidemic is going on, it's just it's so sad that people are so addicted to that shit. That they're still doing it, knowing there's a a risk they could die from yeah. something being laced in it.
2: Oh. Well, you know, Tony always comes to me He's like, when you tell people that you don't do coke, yeah, any I'm talking talk about myself, you know, yeah, I'm like, yeah, well, tell me the real reason you're not doing it. I'm like, oh yeah, I don't want to lose my job. <laughs> you know, right. he's like, you see, the- you see the y'all. He's like, y'all see the problem with that logic. Yeah. He's not worried about dying from doing it, but right. he's worried about his fucking job. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, you know, I'm just like, hey, you know, and then he's right. He's al- you know, he's always right about a lot of stuff, you know, and it's like, no, I know you're right, but, man, I I enjoy, you know, something I I, I enjoy doing. Right, yeah.
0: But, yeah, I, I you know, it's, it's been it.
2: in my face a couple of times in, like, the past year and a half or so, and I just didn't do it, not not only because of my job, yeah. because, man... You always have to listen to what people are saying to you, you know. Whether you whether you like what they're saying to you or not, you're still it's still in the back of your head. What if I hit that and I die?
0: Yeah, it could be cut with fentanyl. I mean, you know, like you never are.
2: know what could be in there. Right. Because, you know, everyone's always like, Oh, I know my dealer, you know. Yeah. That's fine. I know you know your deal. <laughs> I know I understand you know your dealer. You're a homies, y'all drink together, y'all sure. do shit together, you know, whatever. But is your dealer a dealer? legit yeah. yeah because he's a, unless he's getting a kilo of it at a right.
0: time it's kind of stepped on three it's been or four stepped, times he's you know,
2: it, you it, know. You, you're at 70% yeah. coming uh-huh. to Memphis you know yeah. if you're lucky you get seventy five eighty 80 percent now <laughs> but it's just like you just don't know right you know and so I would rather
0: not we had, a, we had a particular dealer my, my buddy uh, Trey would always say uh God, man, every time I do like, I break out in like a little rash and I'm like, what are you allergic to? And he's like, you know, aspirin, you know, like, then he's (laughs) cutting it with aspirin. Oh, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't. (laughs) Well, if it wasn't him, then it was a guy above him or the guy above him, but that's what's happening. So let's not call him anymore. For you, you're an ass because you're allergic. You have weak DNA. But, <laughs> uh, you know, but, yeah, it's true, man. I mean, the fentanyl is everywhere. And then, you know, the sad thing is if you look at it on a wider scale, it's like we know where it's coming from, but we still do business with these people. You know, yeah. so it, it's kind of weird. And, you know, if we if it wasn't coming out of China or Mexico, then someone here would figure out a way to make it in their bathtub and you it's know.
2: because it's so cheap. Yeah. That's where they're adding it to so much of this, so many of these things. Wow. But I was talking to somebody as like, but why are they, why don't they just go back to the day with they cutting with glutamine or something like right. that? Or like you said, baby, you know, some baby powder, sure. you know, but like, if you kill your customer, right. that's one less revenue stream for you. Yeah. Right? And yeah. he was like, that's what you got out of all this? I was like, no, I'm, I'm telling you, <laughs> I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's bad. Right. But people are going to do drugs if they want to do drugs, regardless of what's in it. Right? No doubt about it. If they want to do it, in time, if yeah, they, they want to do it, they, yeah, they're going to do it. If they don't want to do it, they're going to try to get some help or they're going to, you know, whatever they need to do. But to kill your customer, is the worst thing because now he's dead and or she's dead and they right. can't buy from you.
1: Uh, so well, unfortunately, it'll be another person that's, that's going to step
0: up. Or maybe there's a bigger agenda, you know? The the new world order is creating a drug to get everybody that, to, to die, you know?
2: Yeah, and I then, then the select the few that's going to live in the bunker right. are the ones that are not, <laughs> not going to do doing all. But I, I read something that's it's it's so cheap the way they make it or whatever. That's why it's like I just said this, but it's, that's why it's everywhere yeah. in everything. It's a, a cheaper additive, huh? Because like say. Your your dealer that's making the baggies up. It has a is a and he's chopping it up on like a, on a table like this or something. Yeah, and the, you didn't wipe that table and it had fentanyl on it before. Yeah, now that coke has fentanyl. It's like residues oh, sure. of it because right. you know unless you wipe it down with alcohol, whatever is on there is good is 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 going to be in your coke
0: yeah, now. It makes sense. Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm just glad to be out of it. It was a phase in my life too. You know, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm glad it was just that too, you know, like I'm, I'm lucky enough that i never liked the needles and never wanted to do yeah. any of that kind of shit, you know? So, um, I remember one time I, uh, had snorted what I thought was cocaine. This is back in like, you know, 93 in Cincinnati. And then really it was, uh, it was like crank. So I was like up for like three days and my roommate was making fun of me the whole time cause I like, ah, you know, grit my teeth and stuff, you know? <laughs> But he doesn't tell me that it's that until after I saw it because I was like, man, why is my face? I remember my eye was watering. I thought my face was going to burn off, you know. Yeah. And it, it, it was an everyday thing for him, you know. So I thought, what a shithead, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I'm I'm so so glad I don't have to worry about that anymore, you know. Or live I did that, that once,
2: but it wasn't crank. It was a crystal mess.
0: Yeah. And I, might I didn't, as well yeah, that, it might as know? well, right? It's close <laughs> enough. I didn't even realize it was
2: crystal meth. And my buddy gave me the bag. I said, like, yeah. Hey, do you have anything left? And he's like, yeah. And we already been, it's already like, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. we already been out all night after work right. and platinum and all that shit. He's like, yeah, here you go. I go to the bathroom. I just do my, my, my normal bumps and like, I'm like, and instantly, I just feel this burn like yeah, right here. Yeah. I'm like, what kind of bullshit do you have, bro? Right. He goes, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's like, what kind of Coke is this? He's like,
1: it's, it's not, not, it's not
2: Coke. <laughs> wow. I'm like, what the fuck did I just do then? He's yeah. Like, you just need some crystal meth. I'm like, well, I'm going to be up for like next, like 10 years uh-huh. because I need like my normal amount. And he's like, yeah, mm, good luck. Yeah. And time. it's like,
1: fuck. Mm. And that wasn't a wake up call.
2: No, that was that was when I was young too. I mean I continued right. doing Coke for like the next like isn't ten it years after. It's great today. how we like we wear
1: these stories like badges of honor sometimes, you know. Like
2: Oh, you did five rolls? Man, I did six rolls of that concert, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but that is one thing I will do. I will do MDMA.
0: Yeah, I, I, there's um, a medical, you know, history in it that it is helpful for people. Like I like it's on their show. You know, I haven't done any uh, acid in about 20 years, but acid really helped me be a better human being. I swear to it. You know, mushrooms helped me be a
1: better human being. We've been trying to get him to do mushrooms because he's a shitty human. Do being. it, you'll be all right, man. I it, Look, after he just talked about doing meth, right? right. He's, he's worried about bowl <laughs> cleaner for all he really knew. He's worried about mushrooms.
2: It's so, like, look, they're natural. They're from the earth. I told my buddy one time. I go, "Why does my coke taste like?" Uh, I go, "Why does my cocaine taste like gasoline?" He's right. like, "Oh, this is what they cut it with." I'm like, "What the fuck?"
0: <laughs> that shit, I, I shot of out out my nose that, that time. Smelt like gas. I'm telling you, man, like, like I've
2: put a lot of batch in my body, my but I I don't want, I'm not saying I can. I'm not gonna, like an honor wave. I'm just saying, like, I don't know why I'm afraid of doing the mushrooms. Well, it's no, natural. tell them tell
1: what you said about ayahuasca. Why you're afraid to do it.
2: What if, okay, what if my mother ayahuasca comes to me and shows me something that my brain has forgotten that's bad? <sighs>
0: Well, hopefully you can embrace that and interpret it and move forward. I'm a weak person, man. man, (laughs) I I would love to be visited like that. You know, like there was a little time when I was doing this Grateful Dead stuff, culinary school, where people brought people to me and I was supposed to be their acid advisor, if you will. Like there was a guy, Mike Kellner, sat in a bathtub crying with me because he brought, you know, he wanted to kill himself because he was a bad person, you know. Well, after three hours of tripping acid together— he wasn't such a bad person anymore. You know, we used to do this caveman thing where we would stare in the mirror until you got to see yourself as a caveman. Oh, shit. And you would move your, like, I would have them, like, move their lips real slow and, and their eyes. And when you had that caveman moment, like, that's when, like, I would be like, okay, we're there, you know. <laughs> but it takes a while. It took it took him staring in the mirror for an hour, hour and a half. But, you know, a little music. It's good stuff, man. I, and I think it's a great way to expand your mind and heal yourself too you know yeah so like i'm house sitting for my buddy nick you know and
2: every time you walk into his house he always has like the youtube going so it's like this ambiance music it's really nice Mm -hmm. music for the dogs and stuff yeah and like i sat there last night after we got back from being out for like three hours just listening to the music Mm -hmm. i was like damn i'm just sitting there with the dogs i'm like fuck
0: yeah, there's, you know, certain wavelengths, too, and things that, you know, yeah. align your body right, and, you know, if, if there was just, if it was just taught to you when you were younger and not figuring out about it when you're 40, you know, or 38, and you're just like, well, I've wasted 38 years of my life, you know?
2: Well, it's like, why are they still having, like, pure MDMA that's mm-hmm. lab-grown, you know, like and mushrooms and all that kind of why are they still so the government's still so against it i know it's because they can't make money on it right away but
0: like you know i I think there's you know there's a law a lot of people don't oh not a law but you know a rule in the constitution that when a government does something that's unjust we have a right to like overthrow that government i think if people a collective let's just say two hundred thousand people took mdma in one day all across the United States, and we were able to communicate with each other some way, somehow, with it, not just cell phones, like jam, that kind of stuff. But get on the same page Yeah, as a nation. And, you know, there are some people who believe that, you know, our government is innately evil or there, uh, there's, an, uh, there's an agenda against everybody. But, you know, the, the system is broken. I mean, it, it, it's working. We're always going to need some type of structure. But yeah. we should have overthrown this nation 10 12 times by now at least in my opinion you know and it's just my opinion but you know that that's why they don't you know i mean like you know you look at marijuana across the board it's become legal in i don't know 17 states maybe more than that now and it's all for taxes you know yeah. don't get me wrong you're not you know, letting a smoke pot for because we were wrong we lied to you for the last hundred years it's because it States like Colorado are making two billion dollars a year off the taxes on it. You know why doesn't states like Tennessee get off their ass or Mississippi, who's trying, and Arkansas, who did? You know, good old boys. Yeah, it is. We They're stopping. We wear the well the, the Bible yeah. belt on our back every day. Is what I tell people down here in the South. And yeah, yeah. But I mean, the tobacco industry wants their part in it too. Oh, know? for I mean, sure. Uh, I would love to be able to go to a store and buy a box of marijuanas, it, you know, yeah, like a twenty it, pack. You know, that's what I'm saying. There's,
1: let people talk, man. Sorry, Please. sorry. I got
0: excited. I apologize. <laughs> you know, I mean, but yeah, I, I get excited about it. You know, like I, I, I did my culinary thesis on hemp as a food base, right? Food source based food. Hemp for thousands of years fed nations and made. We wouldn't the ocean if we didn't have the hemp made sails, you know, and the rope. But uh, I did hemp as a food source, so I went to a restaurant. It was called Truths. You know, so in culinary school, they give you, you know, $100,000 to create your own restaurant. And I was going to, you know, press my paper, make the cloth, cook in the oil, do everything I could do with hemp. But I had to go before this board of chefs and prove to them that hemp was a food source. So I got the Emperor Wears No Clothes, and I had the Psychedelics Encyclopedia with me. And I read to them where in Ireland during the potato famine, they used hemp as like a gruel kind of soup, you know, but it sustained their. Society, And so then I got all kind of creative with it. So I was thinking to myself, really, coming out of culinary school, I'm going to be the guy that makes hemp the big deal in food restaurants. And then I I saw that that wasn't going to happen right away. And then I was really so hopeful because we had NAFTA got signed in, what, like 93, 94, Clinton. So it said, like, if any of those countries, Mexico or Canada, can create a billion-dollar product, we would – imported into our nation, so so i was like marijuana and hemp in canada is like 330 million dollars a year and this is you know back then i was thinking i'm close you know but i i wasn't that close so i just you know focused on cooking and do my thing now i mean there i've i've been in some private talks with people in arkansas that want to do a marijuana dinner you know like invite only low-key uh, no one knows the location till the day of. I, 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 would love that, you know, and watching enough of those shows on Vice, you know, they, they got culinary cooking programs now with marijuana is being used in dab form, oil form. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I get excited too when, it, when it comes to that kind of stuff.
1: No, no, he just cuts people off.
2: In general. <laughs> no, I, was, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't trying to cut you off earlier when he told me to stop, you know, yeah, yeah. I was just getting excited because you were talking about, you know, I was like, ah, yeah. but like, no, um, you know TN Roots here in town? No, I don't. So it's sunny and he's wi uh, girlfriend I believe. Uh-huh. And um they have but they make uh, cannabis infused stuff. Yeah. And they sell it at like different realtors across the okay. city. And they just created he just created an olive oil. Yeah. And um one more There's two oils he made, right? Yeah, you two cooking oils. Two cooking oils. And like, you know, he's because no one's ever done
0: all, olive oil, he said. Right. And no. he created
2: this at year down and i was like that's really fucking cool yeah, that's why i
0: had the hemp seed encrusted salmon on the menu we were going somewhere with a guy in millington so this would be back in 2014 beginning of 15 he was growing like this hemp kale hybrid right and we were gonna he was gonna sell it to me we were gonna chop it up saute it serve it like as a like a spinach form you know but the fda didn't know what to classify it as um because it was first it was a hybrid second it had hemp in it but we're you know, he kept pushing, like, hemp is not going to get you high, okay? You know, there's no THC yeah. in here. And uh, after three years of trying to develop this, they told him that they weren't going to give it any clarification or classification, so he just stopped trying to grow it, you know, because he wasn't going to be able to sell it anywhere. And it's like, you know, like, why are you preventing this guy from doing this? He's not hurting anybody. Yeah. And I really thought it would be a great... Incentive to go with the hemp salmon that I had, you know, and uh, yeah, so TN roots, I'll look that up, man. Yeah, they're doing some big things. They make um, some
2: stuff for um, Ounce of Hope. Okay, they Ounce of hope buy some of their, I forget what he said they buy from him, but uh, some of their products are
0: theirs. Okay, well, hopefully Tennessee will get
2: on there, get their act together, but yeah, it you know, it goes back to the good old boys, like those yeah. guys, oh, yeah. they don't want it to come here, so they're gonna do, they're gonna. Give as much money as they
0: possibly can to keep it from coming. Well, good thing is most of them are in their seventies, and, and they're going to so. die eventually. Right. So I just, <clears throat> I just hope their sons or grandsons don't embrace those same feelings. You know, yeah. So what's your favorite thing to make? But probably lamb. I love lamb and duck. they are two dishes that people will constantly say that have a strong gamey flavor to them, or they don't. So I like to make them where they love it. You know, like, like my wife, perfect example was, you know, she never liked lamb because it always just tasted weird. First time I fed it to her, she said, Oh my God, I've been eating lamb wrong my whole life. You know? <laughs> Same thing with duck. You know, I got people, people eat duck the way their dad shot and killed it and prepared it for them. Well, if you're doing it comb feed style and you got red wine, olive oil, rosemary, thyme, garlic, and you're slow and low for two, three hours at 245, shit's amazing. And, it changes from you know your your dad plucking some feathers in the garage and, and throwing in a skillet and searing it up, and you know it's just so yeah, lamb and duck, I like to take things that aren't commonly put on a dinner table and try to make them better and and I've gotten really good at lamb and duck, so, you. did you eat duck?
1: I've had it before, it's good.
0: And I like to make spaghetti,
1: too. He <laughs> <You know, laughs> goes from all these exotic right things to spaghetti. <laughs> How do you make the perfect steak? Well, you got to do high
0: heat. Um, so, like for me, just salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. Let that steak set out about 45 minutes an hour. Let it get room temp. Okay. Because if you're taking it right out of the fridge and, say, you got a ribeye or a strip, there's that fat that's in there. That fat cooks at a different temperature than the meat does. But if it's all room temperature and all the same temperature... The fat'll still cook a little faster, but what in essence happens to that fat is it gets a little crisp crunch layer and the inside of it gets creamy. It's just nice. But cast iron skillet, I would always suggest and uh, high heat, use olive oil first. The olive oil will help facilitate the fat solids that are in the butter that I'm gonna have you throw in there. So let's start out with like, you know, two ounces of olive oil and about a quarter size piece of butter. Mm-hmm. Not go crazy. You just want that to give it that caramelization. Um. Uh, so room temp it's sitting get high heat like take it to a point where it's just starting to smoke and you're like oh shit I'm going to burn down a house if I take this any more further go like 10 more seconds and then put your steak down sear it you know for me 2 to 4 minutes on each side and then put it in the oven for 8 and you're looking at 16 minutes you got a beautiful medium rare really steak. yeah how do you make yours not like that i didn't because <laughs> hey, you sous vide <laughs> sous-
2: right so not, sometimes
0: not really right?
1: anymore but. that's
0: that. that's that molecular culinary shit we're talking yeah. about, you know. Oh, that's all the new kids. Oh. They want to when they come into work for you and they're 19, they're like, "Where's your sous vide, man?" <laughs> well, no, you use a like, I got a Ziploc bag and a spoon and a pot of boiling water, bro. <laughs> yeah. that, that's
1: my sous vide. Oh, that's right. You do use your iron thing though. Yeah, cast iron's a beautiful. Um, thing, yeah, the cast iron skillet. Um, do you ever put in the oven? I've never done that. Uh, I know Brad talks about that a lot, but I've never tried it. Yeah, I, I, cast iron's my f- best friend,
0: you know. Like cornbread in it you know make bread pudding in it with, yeah you know, cook steaks in it yeah it's just it it conducts heat so evenly like mm. you know whoever dreamt this up one day and made it thank you you know like <laughs> 200 years ago you're awesome whoever you are you gotta season them perfectly too right you really do. I think just, and you don't have to go crazy. Just some salt and pepper. You know. Oh no, I'm sorry. Oh, the, the, the skillets. The, yeah, the skillet. Yeah, like every once in a while, I'll throw mine in the oven and I'll put it on that clean mode where it gets like 7,000 degrees <laughs> in the oven and it turns a lot of that carbon into powder. And okay. You just wipe it out with a paper towel and then put a little oil in it and yeah. rub it down. Yeah. Don't, don't put it in a dishwasher. You'll kill it. You know, uh, there's a way to bring it back. You'd have to soak it in some olive oil for like two weeks. Oh know? wow. Nobody wants to do that. Yeah,
1: and how do you tell your friend like what's that five gallon bucket of oil back there that <laughs> with a skillet <laughs> in it? You know, did you would you ever do like your own type of cooking show, say like maybe on YouTube or TikTok uh, or something like that? It's possible, you know. I mean, like
0: I don't know. I I keep getting pulled this. I had this like idea about ten or twelve years ago. I was being silly, mm-hmm. you know, but I was like, i dressing up as a friar like monk you know with the hair around the rim here and like having a show called Manna from Heaven it was going to be more of a mockumentary culinary show where we would cook recipes from the Bible mm. you know like oh, wow. sure there was some food in there you know but it was more of a like a joke you know I'm kind of you know that sarcastic side of me so then I was like so I got sober been sober and every once in a while the universe puts people in my path you know and you know, there's been a few people that I've helped correct their life and make their life a little bit better for them. And I'm I'm better for it. They're better for it. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about something like mouth-watering ministries, mm. you know. Like this is probably 10 or 12 years from now when I can't be standing on the line all day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there is a segment of society that— Commits a crime when they're 14, they don't get out of jail until they're thirty-two or twenty-seven. And they've never filled out a lease and they've never made a grocery list. They don't even know how to go to the mall and buy shoes. They don't, they don't even, you know, they don't know what size their shoe is, except for what the prison told them it might be two inches too big or too small. You know? Yeah. They're so and I don't have to pay taxes on it, but there's a there's there's a slight calling in me that wants me to kind of be able to to uh, harness the, the empathetic feelings I have for, for other humans and help them through maybe this, this way of every night we sit at the dinner table and we talk about things, you know, mm. like maybe somebody looked at you cross, you know. Like in jail, if they looked at you cross, maybe you go beat the fuck out of them in the yard or you get a buddy of yours to do that. Well, in society, when you're trying to be normal or act normal, I think you always there's always somebody that you know or somebody that's a friend who's got like an outlaw side to him like you don't want him to have too many beers around the campfire because he's going to want to wrestle you by the campfire. Mm. Those type of guys, I think when you get out of prison and say you've been institutionalized for the last 18 years of your life, you don't know what it is to sit around a campfire and have a good time with your friends, you know. So, kind of teaching that or giving them those situations where they can kind of see how they react in it, you know, but it's all done within the strict confines of a small group, like in a house home or something, but that's kind of where I'm at cooking show. It would be kind of fun to do, but I would want to, there'd have to be an element of it. That would just draw me to it. I mean, people do cooking shows all the time on YouTube. Yeah. yeah, Can I, can I take, you know, like some derelict and teach him how to make steak au poivre, you know, like that's what I would want to do. Like, and it would have to be like a real, just like my buddy who's wearing a beer-stained shirt. It'd be like, let's grab this dude from the street, you know. And i want to bring you my home, and we're going to cook something together. But it's going to take us a few hours. you got a few hours of your time. And, and maybe that's would be something I would want to do. But I feel like there needs to be more, something more fulfilling to it than just cooking something for somebody, you know. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at on that. haven't really put a lot of thought process into it, though. Would you say there's a lot of
1: good tutorials on YouTube for cooking?
0: Oh, hell yeah. There are. I mean, like, you know, when I make fun of people now when they say, you know, hey, how do you make this? Dude, just fucking Google it. Go yeah. to YouTube, man. There's that, There's 700,000 recipes on fucking Google, <laughs> and there's 3,188 people cooking right now. Yeah. You know, just, it's crazy. I, I don't mind sharing that knowledge with them. Yeah. Here's what, you know, we just talked about cooking a steak mm-hmm. four minutes ago. But it's out there, you know, just go look for it. I mean, there's somebody you can find how to make lasagna probably 288 ways, you know, on yeah. YouTube. And watch a 8 to 30-minute long video and make it, you yeah. know. So,
1: you know. <laughs> Whenever I find something on YouTube, I always want to find it where it's, like, concise. I don't want a long, drawn-out oh, yeah. process yeah. of how to do something. Just yeah. give me the meat and potatoes of it. I All don't right. need i had to go to the store but I, you know just tell me exactly step by step you know and then like cliff notes basically yeah that's what i want. I like to use Ooh.
0: youtube for things i don't know what to do mm-hmm. you know like i had to fix a smart sensor and a cooler the other day mm-hmm. i don't know how to fucking do that man but youtube can show me in a four minute 18 second video yeah, yeah that's what i love man
2: i love like the videos on instagram that are a minute long the cooking videos yeah. it's like they're making this, and then all of a sudden it's like boom, 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 you know?
0: I, I, Those was the them. best, man.
2: Because <laughs> it's, like I said, one minute, you yeah. know how to make the entire meal. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, I use YouTube mostly for uh, wrestling videos and, and comics, unexplained videos, movies that are coming out. I mean, I'm sure there's a, a grander scheme in all of it. I mean, as I said, when you talk about you hearing about people that – I remember the, the the guy that was playing football now who was a dishwasher buddy of mine years ago. But there's a kid who like unwraps toys. And oh makes, makes my god! It makes like a million dollars a year. No. Like, well, why can't I unwrap culinary gadgets? You know, and <laughs> show some excitement about it, and maybe show you how to use it. You know, whatever it may be. Who said you can't? Right, right. But that so. kid is making
2: twenty six million dollars a year, what? not that's a million. Just dollars. opening up toys. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's
1: crazy. <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, it's, it's more power it's to insane. Him, I think exactly what he's talking about. Cause there's a meme that says there's a kid on the internet right now. opening up yeah. a toy, making 26. And your, your bitch ass is
1: going to work. <laughs> like, you know, he's
0: like, setting Bester. up his family for three generations. <laughs> of you course. Damn.
1: <laughs> man. Yeah. That's uh, you're in a very, I mean, you're a field that we all need. I mean, cause we all have to eat. Yes. I, I always tell
0: people like there have been friends of mine that said, Hey, Molly wants to go to culinary school. Can she come hang out in the kitchen for a day or craig really wants to be a cook but he's been you know working at uh sonic for the last two years can he come down and hang out with you for a couple of days i always tell him you're never going to go hungry mm. and you you fit a very specific skill set that's always going to be needed um you know doctors plumbers electricians mm-hmm. chefs you know yeah. like, like we're always going to be needed un- until we're not i mean don't get me wrong there's One of the things that has happened in the last 10 or 20 years is that people's lives have gotten very busy with a phone, so they're not cooking as much. The problem, I think, for us in the culinary world is that people are going out to eat less, and they're picking up pre-made things more, or their pre-made meals in the mail now more. There's still a niche for people to go out to eat, but, you know, like, it's a i big. Gap. you got your old school regulars who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s who've been eating with you for 10 years, and you got the 30 to 40 year olds, or sort of. They're going with you because their parents took them there when they were kids. Like you know, in my brain, I always thought when I see grandparents bringing a grandkid, in, I'm like, okay, that kid's going to have his homecoming here. Mm. They might have a graduation dinner. Maybe he has some date nights here and gets engaged here. Maybe I cater their wedding rehearsal dinner. I mean, that's where my brain goes when I see yeah. a family like that. Well, now it's like, you know, Jenny's not getting married. She's, she's getting ready-made meals at home delivered to her. And she ain't going out to eat cause she's afraid, you yeah. know? So, um, but as far as the, the foreseeable future, I will never go hungry. And anybody in this industry will never go hungry. You know?
1: I really like your idea though, about the, the ministry. Yeah. That's a really good idea. That's very, um, selfless. I'd like to too. help you on
0: that. Well, thank you. It yeah, means a lot to me. I have told it to a few people and most people I've I've talked to about it are like, "Dude, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Do that." You know. Because
2: you're right. When people commit a crime early and they spend 25 years, they don't know how to do anything. No. I mean, it's not like that schools teaching kids practical skills anyways, right? right. They're not teaching them
0: banking and shit right. like that.
2: But like these guys and women have no clue because they only know what they learned in the prison. For
0: sure. I mean, to get reacclimated into a society that you had nothing to do with in your prime growing years, I mean, like, you know, our brains are just eating knowledge so fast when you in those early teens, late teens, yeah. early 20s. And, and to know that you were, you know, 178942 for the last 18 years of your life, I mean, I, I think that. It's important, and and I know there are organizations out there who do these type of things. You know, I've I've looked into it enough to know. And being sober, you know, like we got a uh, angel's nephew came and stayed with us for three days a month ago, and we drove him to Dewitt, Arkansas. They have these things called cowboy church. It's weird, but they're rednecky, and Joe Biden's not their president. You
1: know.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, but but they have these rehab facilities where you have to stay for a year. And once you're there for a year, you, you kinda like push you on, but you get jobs through the people you figure out who you know through Cowboy Church. It's hard for me to say it, but I've been there twice. We dropped them off and then we went out two weeks ago and I and I spoke with the guys and we cooked dinner and we all ate, you know, and I mentioned the mouthwine ministries thing to them. They're like, dude, you know, there are networks of organizations that'll help you, you know. But I you know, I don't want to no, know or I don't want to meet the people that's going to give me money to do this. If they want to kill a gay person or a black person, Mm, if that's their feelings, you know, like keep your fucking money. This is going to work out one way or the other, you know? So, you know, like my wife who grew up in Mississippi her whole life, I love her, but you know, she has a mixed perception on things. Sometimes, you know, I tell her, you know, you're only saying that because that's what you heard growing Mm. up, you know? And, uh, you know, like she was like, "Oh, this cowboy church was great." And I said, "Did you hear what that man said?" You know, you know, he was, you know, I said, "I, in my opinion, you know, a loving God. Well, the God of my understanding just loves everybody, and and we try our best to make it work for everyone." Absolutely. Um, his God, his understanding was the kind of God that my parents gave me, which is fire and brim. So You're going to hell. You know, we're the we're the chosen ones. You know, and just like, come on, relax, bro. You know, like, <laughs> like you know, I told my parents. My dad would say, when are you going to come back to church? You know, um, we're going to, I want, I want to see you in heaven one day. And I said, well, dad, your version of heaven, I'll probably already be there. Right. And then he was like, uh, just, you know, I'm just, I said, I have my own personal walk with a God of my understanding. I'm good, man. I'm, I'm real good. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they grew up in a time where church was important. Like going to church gave you social status. You got to meet. Doctor Carroll and his wife. Well, if your kid was sick, you took them to the doctor. You have Ronnie and Becky, they have a garage and they work on cars. So I get the sense of community in it. And I get the sense of feeling like you're a part of something. But you don't have to go to church to to be a good person, you know. And most people going to church right now aren't really good people, um, no. or or they're they're a good part of the time you know and, and and that in itself is fucked up too you know
1: it's it's always funny when people are like oh, i gotta go to church tomorrow after you hung out with them on saturday like you go to church right. Right. Like we were pounding <laughs> shots at two
2: this morning bro you told me some pretty fun things <laughs> that you do and okay well enjoy church in the
0: morning yeah you
2: know like good joy thank you
0: yeah i mean yes it's, it's a it's a status symbol it's a community and i said and there's a sense of community to it there really is i like I said my parents they had four kids i'm I'm quite sure sister W babysat us a few times. So huh? that's, that's the benefits you get of going to church, you know, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Well, we don't want to take up too much more of your time.
0: Oh right, well, man. It's this has been really good. I really, really appreciate you coming on, man. Well, I really appreciate you asking me, being patient with me, you know? Oh yeah.
1: So we always ask people, well, I started this new thing I want to do. So there's this whole thing where you give people flowers while they're alive. So who would you want to give flowers to, like, appreciation to? I give my wife flowers every week. So, like, no, I'm saying, like, (laughs) as far as, like, saying, like, something good about this person.
0: Well, that's a hard one, man. Because,
1: you know, like, we always, when somebody's dead, that's when we usually say good things about them.
0: Yeah, you're right. We do do that, don't we? Well... Gosh, I, I, you know what? I could give flowers to me because I deserve some flowers. You know, I do a lot of nice things for a lot of people and, and I try my best to be a, a good human being. I deserve some flowers. Ain't nobody got me flowers, <laughs> I don't think, ever once in my life. There's nothing wrong now, with now that. My wheels are turning. Like, I, I don't think anyone's ever said these are for you because you made my day. You know?
1: Yeah. Is that selfish? No, no I no, don't no, think so I, at all. <laughs> It's like that whole Snoop Dogg thing. He's like, I like to thank me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, what's your advice for people and what mark do you want to see yourself leaving on the world? Or what mark do you see yourself leaving on the world?
0: Well, for me, the advice I can leave for the world too is that, you know, always get up and try to just be the best person you can be every day. And there's going to get shit that gets in the way. There's going to be problems getting in the way. But as long as you're doing your best to be the best person you can be every day. What's the problem, you know? And I guess my the mark that I could leave when I die, I, I just just want people to say he was a good person. You know, like, you know, it's it's weird. Like, I've come across people who've told me, yeah, I don't know anybody who says a bad thing about you. You know, I'm like, oh, well, go back to Painesville, Ohio. There's a couple of people that I beat <laughs> up in school or I did stupid shit to that'll tell you they probably don't like me. That was 38 years ago, though, or 30 years ago. Hopefully they're... Thoughts on me have changed, too. But that, that I, he was a good man. You know, he, he served a purpose for his community. You know, I, I like that.
1: Yeah. One thing I always thought was really unique about you is every time we would come, obviously, it wasn't just us, but you would always come to the table like you mentioned earlier. And I was like, when you first did that, I was like, yes, yeah, that's, that's makes you feel sp- really special. Yeah. As it should, you know, because I don't think I've ever been to a restaurant where the chef has ever come out to us.
0: Yeah, I had a, a couple of ladies. They were a lesbian couple, one of the first lesbian couples to get married in California in nineteen like seventy eight. They were coming to McEwan's and they would always peek their head back in the kitchen. And sometimes there was this fucking war zone out there, you know. I don't know, like so I got to a habit of going out to visit with them for two or three because they one of their daughters lived here, um, before she was out, but um when one of them passed away and uh, they wrote me like this beautiful letter, you know, oh, wow. and one, of, and in that letter was how they loved that. I always came out to talk to them. Mm. So Damn. I've stuck with that ever since, you know, and it's nice to hear it from the horse's mouth, you know, and then, uh, you know, um, when, when you can ask a server all day long, house table 31, and they, they may lie to you even, Oh, they're great. Cause they don't want you to know that they're having a bad experience. But if I go out and talk to table 31, they're going to tell me, hopefully, you know, there's been a few people in my lifetime where they've sent me a, a text or a review. And I was like, I talked to that fucking table. Wait, they had every opportunity in the world to, to clear this shit up. And instead they want to blast on, you know, whatever social platform they gave the review on. But I think if I'm talking to you, you mean, come on, let's, you know, let's go on a journey together, you know? Yeah. One of the nicest things I did last week was there's was a little child that was with her grandparents at Capitol Grill. And it just. And she wants to make cupcakes. She has her own business card. She's like eight years old. So I just, it just instinctively, I ran back. I grabbed a wire whip. I wrapped it up in Capitol Grill butcher paper. Put a sticker on it. Put it in a bag. Took it out to her. I said, "Hey, I hear there's a pastry chef out here who's making cupcakes out here. I can smell them." And she was like me. And I said, "Well, here, this is for you." I Gave it to her. And then her grandma was like, "Unwrap it," you know. So it was a wire whisk. It's a wire whisk that we bought for three ninety nine. That yeah. Anyways, hopefully she'll take that whisk with her. And I told her, I said, we're going to call you and order some cupcakes. You know, you're going to make them. You know, so that was one of those feelings that, you know, just made me made me feel pretty good about it. And, and the fact that it was, like, very uh, just uh, cuff on the moment, you know. And yeah. Then, and my server was like, Dude, I, man, I ain't seen shit like that. Why would not why would you do that? You know, like, well, I made her day, and I just brought your tip up eight percent, dude. Chill sure will fuck out, one hundred percent, you did, and it probably made her fucking weak,
2: man. Well, That's what I'm thinking, people, you know, like this is, and she's probably using that thing. I'm guaranteeing she's gonna bring you all some cupcakes. I hope so, man. I want to eat some cupcakes. <laughs> yeah, I, hey little
1: girl, you listening? Bring some cupcakes, capital girl. <laughs> what is the most exotic thing you've ever made?
0: Oh wow, I guess, I'm
1: Oh, man.
0: I mean, I, so I did these – I used to do rabbit, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, maybe rabbit ain't exotic, but a lot of people don't eat rabbit. Yeah. But I made this – so for a little while there, I was into Indian cuisine, Indian cooking, and I did this tandoori kind of yogurt uh, marinade for these rabbit loins. And uh, the people who got it loved it, but the people that uh, – m- most people didn't like it or didn't – they kind of strolled their nose up to it. At first, they couldn't understand what tandoori was. And then you tell them it's marinated in yogurt, and they're like, what, yogurt? <laughs> and, then, and then it's a rabbit. But, uh yeah, I think doing that. And then um for a little while there, we were doing, like, uh, a lot of uh organ meats, you know, so mm. sweetbreads, uh, tongue, some brain. But, I mean, that could be exact to somebody or very gross. And when someone says exotic, I think about, like, you know, mm. blowfish or something crazy like that. But... Yeah, for the most part, that that rabbit that I did, the loin, so it's called a saddle. But it tasted really good, and the flavors are very unique and and exotic, you know.
1: So I would have to go there. That's interesting, man. Yeah, like I said, what you guys do is a very unique skill. Like I said, just to take something – and then make it art, or just make somebody's day, or make it delicious—something that may not taste delicious, or maybe it's ugly delicious. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's a whole different. I mean, that's a real craft. Well, thank I you. I think people need to appreciate you guys more than they do. Ah, uh, they do. They really do. I don't I think appreciate they do because you. people always talk shit about people in the service industry, and then when the pandemic happened, when they yeah. couldn't go get stuff. Or they had to go do stuff yeah. on their own. They're like, oh, these people are essential now. Yeah, that, well, yeah, they are. They're people, first of all, fuckface. And then you need to appreciate people for their skills. Well, They're doing something that most people don't wanna do. Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's like that there's a meme that says, y'all complained if 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 your server doesn't like what she does or he doesn't like right, you tell him to go get another got, and they, they did that's why your favorite restaurant is so, so short staffed now
0: yeah. you know right? i, I got a friend jim o'brien he he messaged me about 2 months ago when i was closing a restaurant he said look i want you to get on board with me on this thing it's a it's a robotic Food, gas stations, kind of. No, it's got like one person checks it every couple hours, but everything is going to be done robotic. He was like, "This company is from Arizona; they're going to get a jump on things." And I'm like, "Dude, no, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that." Man. You know, like yeah. I want to shut that down. What I want to do, well you know, there's a a small terrorist. I mean, wants to go blow those things up, you know. <laughs> but um, but I mean, that's where we're heading. If this shortage continues in staffing, and or if you know people just kind of lose the entrepreneurial spirit to want to, because it's just fucking too hard, you know? True. So but,
1: hopefully not. But going back to the whole thing that you were talking about, like the shortages I've always, cause you kind of mentioned it too, about the guy that's streaming. Now there are there other avenues that people yeah. could do like, like they're, they call it the great resignation. And yes. this guy, Gary Vee's always like, what about the great never was? Mm-hmm. Because there's other things that people can do. You see like a lot of people went only fans route. People yes. are doing selling like stuff online. Yeah. Um, so there's a different reasons why. Cause I saw this thing that Mitch McConnell was like, well, people will go back to work once their stimulus money is <laughs> no, gone. There's like, so Mitch, like you've like you for, yeah. Years, like, <laughs> yeah. What, what fantasy world do you live in yeah. as you think people are living off that little bit of money? I mean, we don't live in a third world country. No, uh,
0: even though some of these cities couldn't be considered (laughs) such.
1: His family's dealing cocaine.
0: He's not worried about doing anything. Exactly. Oh, one last question. How would you meet Colin? Well, let's see. So we were at EP's, Delta Kitchen and Bar. Mm -hmm. So things had kind of come full circle for me. Ten years later, um, the place that I came here to open, Elvis Presley's, was now EP's, Jimmy Ishii. Bought it kind of took over the lease from uh, Elvis Presley's, and Colin was working there. Started working there, and uh, we we both had a very fun perspective on life. You know, we both are very big sports fans. He's somewhat of a wrestling fan. He's not kind of he he hasn't continued being a wrestling fan. He he loves the Golden Age. You know, <laughs> okay. and uh, you know I was watching it last night. Um, but yeah, that's how I know him from Eps. We just we had personalities that definitely. Um, mixed well, and we just maintained our friendship throughout that. You know, like I could go three months without seeing Colin and see him again, and it's just like we were sitting in the room yesterday. You know, he's a good person, no doubt about it. He's no a really doubt good guy, about it. he's one of my favorite people. And he's one of those friends I retained you know,
1: oh, yeah, through sobriety. You know? That's he, good, yeah, he stuck with me and, and stayed. That says a, a lot, man.
0: It does, it does.
1: Yeah, have a friend of mine, she got sober. And then like people that we knew because I went to high school with her, and then people that we knew from high school don't talk to her anymore because she doesn't drink anymore. Yeah, it's, just, it's just like it's, oh, man. it's
0: what it is, you
1: know. If I think if you have that kind of problem, you're probably the one that needs to probably get sober.
0: Probably. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you well, guys. I really do Thank you so much you. for coming on, man. Hell yeah. And so, when are you at Capitol Grill? Like, if we want to come see you,
0: basically, the schedule seems to be Monday through Friday, 10 to 8. Um, I'm off Saturday, Sunday. Now, you know, we kind of mixing things up since Will is out with COVID. So, but uh, like next week, technically, I'm off Friday, Sunday. The week after, I'm off Saturday, Sunday. So, Saturday, Sunday seem to be
1: the, you know,
0: so anytime Monday through Friday, 10 I want to 8. get one of
1: those towers. Oh, yeah, the Grand Plateau. Yeah, I saw that Seafood Tower. It's pretty fucking cool. Yeah,
0: I always tell people, now that I see them with it, I say, man, you, you, right now you're the coolest fucking people in Memphis right now.
1: You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, I appreciate it. You're welcome, Tony.